We are back for another week of classes. Uh, I am your professor, A.G., and to my right is going to be the John Bennett to my Ted. Um, he is the supreme commander of the historically high dank dojo. And as Nate Dog said, when it comes to war episodes, nobody does it better. That's Professor Chris. Doesn't who else sing that song? Warren G isn't would have had to have been on it a, too. That's like from a James Bond movie. Like nobody does it better. That's a fucking James Did Bond. Did Adele rip that? I think he ripped that. I think he sampled it. Adele, a bit. not he. No, that's not Adele. It's like an old James Bond movie. It's like Ardell instead of Adele. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we are here today. Um, we needed to get back on our war shit. We always have really enjoyed doing these episodes. You guys seem to like them. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that for being being the war dog. <laughs> no, for as much as I've like looked into this, you know what? I, and I figured it out. What I figured out what the issue is. I didn't know really anything about the Korean War. Uh huh. And looking at it too, I know some about Vietnam, but I don't know a ton about Vietnam. I know a shit ton about like World War One, World War Two, because. Just like the fucking Korean War in Vietnam, you could justify being in those wars. Yeah, you could put yourself on a on a side and say like it, it's like a movie. You're you're always going to root for the good guy, and when there's a very discernible good guy and bad guy, which I'm not saying there isn't in these scenarios, but like when you have reasoning to know why you're fighting, I think it's that, that's why I like learning about that stuff. So kind of looking into the whole fucking Korean thing. You want your soldiers to want to be there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Cause then you just, you're like, okay, well at least them, some of them are there by choice, uh-huh. which in this situation, some of them were, but like, no, you didn't need to be there. There's no point of being there. No. And I think that's kind of what we're going to go over and hopefully not drive it home to death. But as far as the Korean war goes, the reason why, like you say, you didn't know a lot about it. The reason why I don't think I knew a lot about it. The reason why we just aren't taught that much is because A, it's still technically going on. And B, we can't say that we did anything beyond what we was can't already we set won. up before we showed we, up. We can't notch it up in yeah. the W column. Because guess what? Like we don't did we didn't even thinking back on it in school. How much did we learn it uh, on actually like what the conflict in Vietnam was about. You would learn that there was a conflict in yeah. Vietnam, how many people died in Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh Trail, all that shit. We probably didn't even go into detail on that kind of shit. No. Because it's uncomfortable and it, you're not able to notch it in the wind yeah. column. Very true. So luckily for you guys, you can notch this episode in the wind column. Um, as we always talk about lately, uh, get in there, give us a little bit of love, five-star Rain reviews on Spotify. Subscribe. We're getting close to 100. It would be excellent. Um, give us a subscribe, comments on Apple. Send so, those numbers to the moon. Yep, let's get get to break through the roof on this. So uh, without further ado, we are headed to Korea. And here we go. All right. 
like everything we find out in history, there are so many <laughs> interconnecting things here that yep. it's it's just a web. It's not like this is just Korea. No. This is just geographically where the Korean War happens. It, this just kind of happened to be a spot where this happens. Exactly. And, uh, before we get into it, um, favorite Korean? I think we probably have the same one. Bobby Lee. I was going to say yeah. we want to hit it on three, but yeah. But Bobby Lee, number one. David Chang, uh, the restaurant guy, number two. Chan Ho Park, I think, was South Korean, the pitcher. Chan Ho Park sounds sort of Korean. I honestly, I guess I don't know that many famous Koreans. Uh, they they don't. We don't. I'm just with Bobby Lee. But I will say, um, for what South Korea had, and uh, this is just kind of foreshadowing, but for what South Korea had in training and like what we gave them was such a disservice to what was going on in North Korea <laughs> with the Soviet Union. Well, let's let's set the stage. I'd okay. like to have a, a frame of reference here. So let's start geographically. So for those of you that don't have a map handy, Korea is in a very surprising position. South China Sea, is that... No. It's not considered South China Sea? No, dude. It is... It's north of Japan. Did you not look at... Come on, man. I did. Oh, okay. So it's north of Japan... Then is Taiwan below it's, it's, Japan? Yes. Okay. Yes. And Taiwan is closer to the Japanese mainland. That's why, or the, closer Chinese to the Chinese mainland. mainland. That's why they claim it, or have well, claimed tried it, or to tried claim to have it. tried to claim it. But it is also after the Chinese Civil War, where the countries or the power leadership that we helped yes. install, that's where they ended up was in Taiwan. Yes. So you have Korea, which is basically northeast or northwest of Japan. It's very close. So close, in fact, that in 1910. Uh, the Japanese kind of didn't really annex it, but took it over as a territory, right? I think they just officially annexed it. They walked in, they kind of saw some stuff that they liked. They realized that there was far more land in Korea that they could use to mm -hmm. grow crops, to ship into uh, their Enough to where they took it over, and in school they wouldn't let them speak Korean. They yeah, enforced which, a lot of their Japanese culture. So this is even giving you, like, breadcrumbs of, like, what the Japanese are going to be up to fucking 20, what, 20 years later when they start building up for World War II. Well, it, I think it's kind of tough. I'm not here to defend colonialism as well, or as much, but we always hear about Great Britain. Mm -hmm. We always hear about America. We always hear about Spain and kind of their yes. colonies and all that shit. Japanese was a, co a colonial society. Like, they had colonies. I guess. That's so weird to think that Japanese would have colonialism because there's just a small... You would think it's more beneficial for them because they're just a small island. Yeah. So to go out and take over big swaths of land would definitely That's be beneficial. That's why Britain did it because Britain would, had an island. It was limited. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's right, huh? Yeah. Okay. When you don't have something, you have to like set off and go try to find it, I guess. And you usually do that by fucking conquering someone. So <laughs> we got 1910. The Japanese take over Korea. So you have a 35-year period where up until the end of World War II when the Japanese surrendered, where Korea was essentially ruled by Japan. And part of the defeat of Japan, kind of like what happened with Germany, is it got divided. It was one of those spoils that Japan had got or had gotten it before World War II and we're like, you can't have this. We took we're taking your shit. You can't have this. It's almost like not to cut you off, but it's almost like the Middle East is sort of what Central Asia is. Not necessarily everybody else, but the way that the Middle East was carved up after World War One was it? Yeah, but it wasn't taken over. I mean, and the reason I use the whole Germany thing or Germany, Germany thing is because half of it was controlled by the United States and the Allies, half of it was controlled by the okay. Soviets. So, in a sense, this is what happened. Just as an example, to Korea, basically, 
the Soviets are already there because that's touching Soviet mainland. Um, there's a little sliver of um, Russia that actually is bordered with Korea. The rest of it is bordered with Manchuria, which is mm-hmm. part of China. Yeah. Am I correct in that? Yep. The okay. Yalu River. Yep. So we divide it and it's decided not even like by way, way higher ups. Mm-mm. Nope. It's like, and it's, it's an officer, but it's not like a five-star general or anything like that. It's like this officer, uh, last name Rusk, Rusk. He ended up becoming secretary of state. Oh, they is said that was, the guy? Yeah, they, they said he just was arbitrarily was like, "Hey, that's the thirty eighth parallel." Yes. Yeah, so basically, <laughs> the design and it's a, it's a longitudinal like degree. It's not like they just drew it. They were like, "Why just this one?" It, it looks like it splits it equally in half. That's how I imagine it happening. This is going to be rough on me. Uh, latitude is the one that it is, right? Latitude lat, might lat be flat. up and down. No, lat flat thirty eighth parallel. Yeah. So longitude, so not latitude. longitude, because longitude's up and down. Okay, yes, it's latitude. Okay, I that was like the only thing I learned in fourth grade. Are you sure? Because they always say change your latitude instead of attitude. Wouldn't that mean higher or lower? You yeah, don't raise, raise your attitude, lower your attitude. Yeah. So longitude is sideways. No, latitude is sideways. Longitude is long. It's okay. from pole to pole. I'm going to trust you on this. I don't know enough about it to make that, If we're wrong, somebody please correct me. And I'll we're using bummed. the correct terms. I just don't know if we're applying them correctly. Anyway, yeah. 38th parallel. It seems to cut Korea pretty e- equally in half, you know, give or take a little bit. I think the South definitely got a little bit more, but I think it's just all coastal land, which isn't yeah. always the best. So at this point... It's kind of like a little micro experiment now happening in Korea after World War II. You have the allies and for the majority, the Americans, basically trying to install like a capitalist society, right? Then in the north, you have the Soviets and the Russians who basically install a guy who is all communist. And there's nothing scarier, Adam... Fucking communism, right? I don't know if I can beat that drum this episode because if you're saying that this was like a social experiment and North Korea was communist, and I granted South Korea didn't take off until like the 80s, there was a long time when South Korea was very downtrodden, like it wasn't always just as cool as it is now, like hosting Correct. the Olympics and For shit. Up until the 70s, North Korea was like considered more successful yeah. and more developed than South Korea, and then like after the 70s and 80s. It was a, like a total role reversal. And that's why I don't want this to be the experiment, because just like you were getting into, if this was a one-to-one communism versus capitalism like experiment, you got to say capitalism wins. But at the same yes. time, I feel I, like no, it's no, a little no, no. I'm not saying that in relation to like the contest between the two. I'm just saying that communism is fucking always the reason for something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It just that's, – that's the buzzword. That's the fucking dog whistle. That's the word you use if you want to rile up you know, rile the public and everything. Well, and the really hard thing that happened in this situation was uh, the line was drawn. It was the 38th parallel. That was just where the cutoff was. But the communist side in Pyongyang and the uh, capitalist side in Seoul, 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 both felt like they had the full claim to the country. Yes, definitely. It was kind of an unagreed upon, like, it wasn't their choice that they were divided for, like, a Korean people's perspective. That was just all Korea. It was literally, like, and that's the whole point. This is, this has been called so many things. It's been called the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people don't call it war because Truman called it a policing action. Um, 
at the time. It's also kind of a civil war in a way, and it's also been called a proxy war. And the Forgotten War. And the Forgotten War. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be any of those things exclusively. It can be all those things without being another or, you know, without having sacrifices that because it is a proxy war because you literally had these two world powers at some point playing, you know, in this perfect example, when it gets developed to where they divide it into North and South Korea, they start establishing governments, but they can't just rule. It's not like Stalin can rule that. And then fucking Truman at the time can rule <sighs> South Korea. They have to set up essentially a legitimate system there for them to try to rule themselves because the point is to get the fuck out. Yeah. I, the point I feel like is you need to get out to save face, but you want to make sure that you set up a system that's going to be like the most beneficial thing in the world to you. Yes. You, because you want to, you have a, you have a contest on a world stage to basically put communism and capitalism side by side and have one of them fight for dominance. They, I don't know if they intended, they didn't intend them to go to war because obviously the UN didn't want to step in and be like, fuck, we got to deal with this shit five years after World War II. Yeah. What I'm saying is you basically, like you were saying, you want to establish the strongest system in each of those. And then you have your influence, like in proxy, you have the Russians and, you know, um, the communist, what is the Mao uh, Chinese regime. Mm -hmm. You have them basically assisting North Korea with the communist shit. At the same time, you have the United States and some of the other members of the UN basically trying to help out. So at the same time, it's like parents trying to like watch their kids play a sport and they're over on the sidelines being like, no, 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 do this. Go this way, buddy. Go this way. Yeah. I, I just feel like it was a little bit more overt in this situ or situation because as we'll talk about, the president of South Korea was a man named Sing Man Lee or, oh shit, I did it and I fucked up and I'm sorry I didn't mean to. Sing Man Ree. And that's you had the, the, whatever you call it, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was there. Sing Mon Ri, uh, I believe that is R-H-E-E -E yes. is the last, R-E-E? -E? Yep. Okay. R no, R-H-E-E. R-H-E-E. -E. Yeah. Okay. Even wrote it wrong on the board. Not nice. Um, he graduated from like two separate colleges in America. I think they said that he was the first Asian American or first Korean, probably not first Asian American, first Korean to graduate from Harvard. Really? Yeah. So this was a guy who came over from Korea at a very young age and we kind of, I don't want to use the term groom, 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 but, groom, yeah, groom, yeah, groom. We call, built, it, call it what the fuck it is. Okay. We built him up to maybe be somebody who would be very partial towards the United States. And then we fly him back over there like, Hey, we have this guy that we're going to put in this presidential race that you guys are going to vote on. But just understand he is definitely the best person for the job because you've been held under, um, annexation from Japan for so long that you don't understand like the differences between who's the strongest Korean as far as political or not. Cause there was no other system. I think there were ways that the, I'm not saying the election was rigged, but in a sis, in a situation where you're literally right around this time, five, four or five years out of world war two and you've already, and you've been oppressed by the J yeah. Japanese that entire time too. You're not gonna, you're just going to vote for whoever someone makes it more beneficial or, Possibly, you know, that person is able to go ahead and smear his opponent. That that's just that just happens in politics. But in essence, the guy it's just very is it very convenient that the guy that was completely backed by the United States was the guy that ended up winning? Like that's not convenience. Yeah. Or no, coincidence. Sorry. It was just a great day, I guess, in in Korea and, for and here's Re the thing is it's not going better up north because what no. ends up happening is they decide that they're not gonna participate in an election. And a guy well, named... I thought they said that they had done it. 
I thought they said that because technically was, they're the DKPR the or the DPKR. Yeah, so let's let's kind of discuss that. So in a weird like <laughs> addressing of names, and we're just going to refer to them as North and South Korea. Yep. But basically, whenever um, North Korea was established, it's the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That's the communist state. Which sounds like the, it would be the name yeah. of the well, in the South. And so South Korea is actually the Republic of Korea, and it's the capitalist state. So, again, the wording is very weird. But, yeah, getting back to what you were saying, we have kind of the exact same installation. I don't know where Kim Il-sung came from. Okay, here we go. I know this a little bit. Okay. Okay, so Kim Il-sung, which if the name sounds familiar to anyone... The last name in this culture is Kim, but it's the first one addressed. So you might be familiar with his son, Kim Jong-il, and then his son, Kim Jong-un, who is currently in power. So this is as a direct result of this shit happening during the Korean War. Also, Korean War, very, like, first engagement of the Cold War. Yeah. People say the Cold War was never, like, actually actively fought by Russians and Americans and Chinese Bullshit. Yeah, this is a direct proof that it, 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 it was actually was. fight. There were fighter pilots fighting against mm. people. Yes, and they and they were representative of those countries. So you have um, Kim Song, Kim Kim Il Sung, Kim Il Sung, and he basically is um, full on anti Japanese from being you know ruled over by the Japanese. Could imagine completely understandable. His um, family actually fled to Manchuria from the Japanese. So there they essentially were taken in by kind of, I believe, the Mao regime or whatever, like at least the communist portion Mm -hmm. of them. And not only that, but apparently he got noticed at some point by the Russians for how fucking rah-rah communism he was. So he was actually brought to train as a soldier, and he became like a guerrilla fighter and all this kind of stuff. And then he became a commander, like a lieutenant. So, so he, he had, had like some men, blood on his hands before he yep, got into power. And he had men that he had commanded and everything. He was training, I think, in Russia. I'm trying to remember exactly where I read. But he was basically then um, picked by Stalin or his, you know, whoever was making that decision for Stalin to basically then be put on. Because they needed a native Korean. Same reason why we had to, you know. <laughs> Sing like got dug up. Yeah, exactly. So that's how the Kims came to power in fucking North Korea, in case you didn't know that. There you go. Yeah, we're only, this is third generation uh, communist Korean. So, yeah. so on the scale of like world events, mm-hmm. it feels like it's a long time ago, but this is only no. grandfather, father, son. It is. Well, the dates of this from the, for the actual Korean War were June 25th, 1950 to June 27th, 1953. And again... Like you discussed before, there wasn't an actual end to this thing. There was just kind of a ceasefire, like, hey, quit firing us, we'll quit firing at you. Yeah. And that's all it's been. Well, they, they signed an armistice and all mm-hmm. that. Well, we'll talk about that. An armistice was signed. But at the same time, since it was just an armistice, that's why you still have so much support from Russia and China in North Korea for uh, Kim now. Mm-hmm. And you still see like an active military base in, or an active American military base in South Korea that is training. Is it in Pusan? Uh, I don't know if it's in Pusan, but I know that our military footprint is very deep. I think they have a huge military base in Pusan. Okay. Well, and that'll make sense when we get into this. But 
I think maybe they realized, like you said earlier, that they couldn't just hang out in these countries. So they decided that once, I think it was a matter of five years after. Yeah, so you figure World War II ended in the Pacific in 45. So Russia leaves North Korea in 1948. They get all their shit set up and they're like, okay, okay. we're out. Yeah, and so then, but this was like an agreed upon thing. We're going to leave these two yeah, alone. Yeah, neither of us. It was... It was the fucking, like, it was the sneaky shit that we were doing back and forth between our country. It was just like, we're not breaking any rules. And in the UN, you have people arguing, be like, what are we, we're helping these people. Yeah. It was, it was that fucking sleazy ass gaming. And like, no one wants to go back to war, especially against two superpowers, because now everyone, both of us have the nuke. So it was just this weird, like, testing and prodding and seeing how far you could go until you got your hand slapped type shit. Well, and it wasn't just on one side either. It was no, no, no. certainly both sides. So U.S. ends up leaving South Korea in 1949. So you think, hey, everything's going to be going great, you know, fantastic. Um, now, <laughs> not so much. Not for long. So also, it's good to it's good to mention that apparently pre World War II there was a Chinese civil war going on against the Mao communists yep. and the nationalists. I forget what the name of their the he's got is. a great name. What is it? Uh... You can't just say it's a great name and then not be able to give me that name. It and I, it's recognizable. I know when I heard it. Yep. I recognize it. I know I'd heard that before. I'm going to let you look that up okay. while I continue. So you basically have – and I'm, and they, are, they were called the nationalists, I think, is what their, their faction was. So when World War II happened and Japan invaded, they were just like, hey, time out. China, you know. Time out in China. We're going to stop fighting each other. We're going to worry about the... Shanghai Shek. That's right. Sick ass name. Yes. So they pretty much put a pin in the in the Chinese Civil War and fought against Japan. Well, as soon as Japan surrendered, it was just like the bell was like ding, ding, and then it was Chinese Civil back War on. was back on. Yep. Like there was nothing fucking resolved. So you have the Mao communist and then the nationalists. Well, North Korea had supported the, uh, Mao and had actually previously provided them with like soldiers and everything. Well, the um, because that faction ended up winning and taking power in China, and they were very grateful when they sent back all these men from to North Korea that had fought. They let them keep all of their weapons and stuff. So you basically had that's convenient. You basically had already trained soldiers coming back, and they were also armed to help with your. So not only did you have whatever weaponry you already had and whatever army. You then had people coming back bringing more shit. Well, and you know that the flight planes back to Soviet Russia were probably too full when they were leaving. So they just decided to leave a lot of the tanks and things that they had brought into the country for the Northern Republic. At the time prior <laughs> to the actual Korean War kicking off with yeah. the first invasion, I think they said they had like 300 um, Russian tanks. And they always say like they're World War II hand-me-downs. Like, that's always the thing. They had hand-me-down things. Five years ago. Like, first, yes, first of all, it was... And, like, how many of those tanks actually probably didn't even see combat and they were already getting yeah. manufactured and shit? Yeah. So, I mean, these were They were, were still, the last ones coming off the assembly yes, line. these are still, in the sense of, like, this part of the world, these are still, like, the fucking top-tier shit. You bought yourself a 2018 Ford Explorer. Yes. Like, nothing... Nothing to Eddie Bauer shake edition. your head. Yeah. yeah, Eddie Bauer edition. So, I, I just find it interesting. I mean... I don't know. I don't really want to... I have no problem pinning things on Soviet Russia because, like you say, this is the Cold War. But it feels like maybe they left the... Uh, 
pieces, the materials behind to be like, hey, man, if I know guys- you really want to grow this land yeah. because you say it's all yours. It, we're just going to leave these here. The keys are in the lockbox over mm-hmm. there. So if you, I mean, we'll show you how to drive them before we leave. Like, we'll run through a course. But just in case you need to move them out of yeah, the way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not, not using it for war. Um, regardless of what you guys do, use them, don't use them, use them, whatever. And on the other side, I think there was there were less tanks that were left on the South Korean side. Much, much less. And it was like 144? Something like that. It was, And it was whatever they had probably sent from Japan. Yeah. Or sent from the Pacific Theater, so who knows what condition those were in. Now... Maybe I, still nice. Yes. So basically, like you were saying, both of these, North Korea, South Korea, both of them claimed to be the legitimate government of Korea. They didn't really recognize the fact that they were North and South Korea. It was just these guys in the South think they're doing their shit. We're in the North, but we're really doing the, we're doing the real shit for Korea. Either way, both of them consider the others freeloaders. Yeah. And apparently at some point after, you know, the Russians and the Americans left, there were unification negotiations going on. And but it was never like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. It was kind of like, hey, come up and join the Communist Party. Yeah, like, ours is so much better. They're like, ours is fucking better. That was the negotiations was just you could yell the loudest. You do have to think, though. There was, And this wasn't the people thing. I honestly think, like, if I was a betting man, if they just let the whole country have an election as to whether they wanted to go communist or they wanted to go capitalism, mm-hmm. I bet you they all would have gone communist. It seems like, because the same thing, when they were taken over by the Japanese and the Japanese started installing their people over there, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what they just saw in South Korea happen. Like, they just saw him bring over a guy who's Korean in birth and nationality. they're not seeing the same thing about them putting in a Korean that has been training in China and fighting in Russia and stuff like that. And Would you not say that it's Imperial not like, China, though, is close, or Imperial Japan this, is closer to... I don't to, think it's like Kim Il-sung was like uh, the hero of like North Korea. And then they brought him in to be the leader. He was also a plant. Yeah. He, no, he definitely was. I just feel like they were definitely more used to a communist style life. I think they were. And I think you're probably right that they would have gone that way because China was right there. It's not like they didn't have any experience, at least with that geographically closer. Yeah. And plus, like you said, they're, we're taking the place of the Japanese kind of on for these guys. In some ways, and we might be doing similar stuff to them. I'm not talking about the atrocities and everything, but the way we're trying to kind of control shit might be similar to them. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, maybe maybe this looks a little bit better. But at the same time, you know, those negotiations weren't going to, especially after just having those governments installed, they weren't going to cave and just be like, oh, you know what? You guys are right. You guys were actually correct. Let's, let's just all just do that. Yeah, that's true. And so... Uh, it's also important to point out what the state of not just Korea is at this point, but kind of like the UN, who's can kind of controlling the region. Um, a little guy by the name of Douglas MacArthur. And I don't know if we've talked about MacArthur. We haven't had like a, a lot of information. We might've talked to, about him during Midway. I think we gave him some pretty good throat during Pearl Harbor. And I, I have to apologize now because we've, We've got some new information on Dougie that... Uh, new new information has come to light, dude. <laughs> new shit has come to light, Walter. Um, yeah. And I'm, hey, I'm not too big. We're not too big here to admit when we have maybe judged someone positively 
too quickly. Yeah, we've never said we're 100% accurate. We've always we were, let you know. We were judging a book by a few chapters. Uh-huh. We need to wait till we read the whole book before we were able to go ahead and really make a recommendation. It turns out, like, the last 100 pages are just fucking Would not blank. recommend. Yeah, all it just says is fuck on, like, the last yeah, 100 yeah. pages of the book. Two thumbs down. So you get Doug, uh, Douglas MacArthur, and he is, he's a hero of World War II, um, He's the guy that, you know, when he left the Philippines, I shall return. Probably should have seen kind of some of the terminology he was using. Maybe let that dictate how we would have thought about his personality going forward in the future. Well, that, and then we also, wasn't he the guy that turned tail and run during the Bataan Death March? I can't remember. Did they, I I could have sworn that he was part of the guys that, because that happened in the Philippines, right? He was the guy that had to evacuate the Philippines. Like, that's why he said, I will return. Yeah, I think he left also, a lot of people there. I did there hear that... something. I'm not saying there's a ton of... But I did hear that apparently he was provided, he was paid yes, some money by was. the Philipp- Philippines government and everything. So to it's stick not, around. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to return for more of that fucking, more of that cheddar. So not to discredit what he did, his campaign in the, you know, in the Pacific basically helped win us World War II. So I'm going to go ahead and try to separate the art from the artist until we get to more of his art at this point. Broken clock is right twice a day. So for his services, he is basically made commander of the... um, I'm trying to think of what his title was before he was given uh, command by the UN. I thought he was commander of the army and then once he became... Of the Pacific still or something like that. And then once he hit the UN, it was supreme commander of allied forces forces, or something like that. So, but basically what his role is after World War II is he's basically running Japan, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he, you know, the Japanese surrendered. Part of the surrender dictated that, and it, some of it was based off um, MacArthur's recommendations, that the emperor got to remain emperor of Japan. Initially, we wanted to be like, no, fuck that. We're going to try the emperor for war crimes because he's the emperor of Japan <laughs> and you guys have done like horrendous atrocities throughout this fucking war. This was the guy that agreed with uh, Hitler and Stalin. Yes. Or not Hitler and Stalin, but Hitler, Hitler and Mussolini. Mussolini. Probably Stalin on a couple things. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Well, but, I mean, yeah. later on. <laughs> so this guy, um, MacArthur basically says, hey, the whole reason that we drop the bombs is to avoid you know, having to do an invasion and fight the entire Japanese populace. He basically just said, if we charge the emperor with war crimes, the entire, this is a God to these people. Like that's going to cause the entire revolt. Basically, they're going to go to war with the world again, and we're going to have to invade the Japanese homeland and just wipe them all out. So he's like, but we're going to basically limit what this guy can do. So if so facto, MacArthur is basically in charge of the emperor the emperor gets to live his life, remain the figurehead of worship and all that kind of shit. He just basically doesn't have really any authority anymore. MacArthur's running the day-to-day. Yep. And there's even even enough so to where MacArthur <laughs> took a picture and had a picture taken of himself. Did you hear about this? He had a picture taken of himself and the emperor. MacArthur is probably, I would say, maybe a foot taller than the emperor. And apparently up to this point, it had been a really closely guarded secret to not allow the emperor to get photographed next to anything that could provide scale because they wanted him to seem larger than life. He was not a large man. So we put a big white American dude next to him? MacArthur then took that picture and had them run it on newspapers in in Japan. And the Japanese government tried to stop it and been like, you can't do this. He's like, actually, I can do this. And just wanted to go ahead and show who the actual control and who the who the bigger man was basically, 
So we should have seen some of this coming. <laughs> probably should have. So he liked, and he also lived. He lived in Tokyo. That's basically where he had like his headquarters or his fucking complex or whatever it was. He was basically a dude that was running Japan. Yeah. So I'm going to say this once now, and then we're going to talk about it after we get through the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Um, MacArthur ran. Most of the Korean War, he was the guy that was leading the troops. Uh, he, well, when I say that, he's the guy that's in charge of leading the troops. He's the guy that never spent a single night yes. in Korea during yep. the entire war. MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, never spent one sleep in Korea at all. He ran everything from Japan when they would do from some Tokyo. good shit. Not or, even like northern Japan where he was closer. Yeah, no. he ran it from fucking Tokyo. Uh, he would show up to Korea for like photo ops, basically. Like, hey, we did something cool. He traveled I'm, with I'm his own shit um, happen. His own like media, yeah, and everything. He had a guy that was right below him. Um, his name escapes me, but it's a really bad name. I Almond? think you got it, Almond. Yes, yes. Excuse me, Almond was kind of his guy on the ground. And at this point, I think they said that MacArthur was like seventy years old. He so was up, he, he, he was, was up aging up. out of where he needed. He had to be. served in World War One. He had been the admiral or whatever you want to consider the supreme commander uh-huh. of the Navy um, in World War II. And then, yeah, now he's in this and he is basically, he's 70 plus. We got Almond who's on the ground in Korea kind of feeding in the information that MacArthur's giving him to everybody. Uh, he had a trailer that was set up that had basically heat and cold. Yeah. Inside of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had steaks flown in so he could eat steaks like while everybody else steaks. was eating rations. Yep. And uh, he wine. Had some, some Wagyu shit. He wine. probably, yeah, he was getting the best wine around. And they said that there was a little bit of dissension. There, there was a little bit of maybe ill will felt from the men who. This guy who served also, I think, in World War One and World War Two, And I think there's going to be a lot of this discussion during the episode of. It's not even resting on your laurels. It's thinking that you've made it through two world wars and you're this decorated, like, you know, basically a celebrity at this point. And so, like, you can do no wrong or you've never lost enough to think that you can lose. Like, you may have lost battles or, like, lost, you know, like, fucking have to leave the Philippines. Mm -hmm. But maybe you don't think that, like, you ever have the capability. You have a, a... a god complex basically and you've just been fucking lord of japan for the last four fucking years yeah yeah you finally got to see you could have done excellent in world war one and world war two and so now maybe you feel like you're getting your flowers as you're treated like a god in mm-hmm. a foreign you're country. being you're being lobbed up a softball yeah and it's okay. going to be and it's going to be your opportunity to knock this out of the park and then retire at the same time, because you do have political aspirations as well. Yeah. Well, to become president back home. You get a little wacky eventually before you end up making that run. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, just want to get that out of the way now because we're going to talk about it in the end. Uh, man never spent one sleep in Korea. That, to me, seems like a fairly inefficient way to run a war. No shit. You're flying in. You're basically for photo ops to have pictures to say you were there. So you can report back to the Joint Chiefs of Staff or you can have your fucking publicists run articles that you're on the ground in fucking Korea and there be some truth to it. Because, yes, technically you were. You weren't at the fucking front. Well, and that's, I think, a lot of the comparisons that I heard about uh, wasn't Eisenhower. It was another general that became pretty big. Um, but 
usually good generals, and we talked about it with Napoleon, we've talked about it with a lot of the generals that we've talked about, they want to lead from the front. Yes. They want to be out there on the front lines just behind their guys. They don't want to die first. Mm-hmm. They want that protection, but they want to see, they want to survey the battlefield ha- and, and what's going they on. They also have to, it's a morale thing, and then it's also being able to react in the moment. Yeah. Like, if you're too far back to, like, you have to send a messenger or run. If you're to getting get a cable that could be a day away... Yeah, you're you're, a day or you don't trust anyone enough to do it yourself. Yep. You have to be in those in those situations. Well, and, uh, MacArthur, uh, going to use his words here, said that he had a very good understanding of the Oriental mind. Yes, which, again, not a good word, and I'm sure it. Just like you talked about, he called the Chinese laundrymen. Mm-hmm. His respect level for these people is not there to begin with. Which I don't understand because he literally fought like. I don't know if he thought if these people were fighting against the Japanese and lost to the Japanese, but then the Americans beat the Japanese, they must be so weak. But like to not have respect after what you saw like the Japanese do and like how they how many losses they inflicted and how like insane like kamikaze shit and like rushing into lines with strapped with grenades, like to not have respect that maybe some of that culture permeates throughout the, you know, this Asia, you know, this area of Asia to well, just underestimate what these like, do you, you just have zero respect for your enemy yeah. so much. So in fact that like they had no intelligence on who was, they didn't even know who was in fucking control of North Korea until yeah. how, how long? Uh, I believe it was when they started talking about going to the bargaining table. It was like 52. Yes. That, to me, is incredible. Um, I would probably say, too, that he hung out and spent enough time in the Philippines that he probably had an idea that that was, like... Filipinos certainly are Asian. Mm -hmm. But I would probably say Filipino of Asian descent, trying to say it nicely. Um, Not really the same as an Asian-Chinese person. It's like like someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest and then someone lives in, in the South. Yes, yeah. All yeah. part of the same grouping kind of area. Yeah. I think people like kind of just need to think of it. Does that sound weird that people just need to think of it that way? Because a really like ignorant thought is to be like it, everyone kind of is the same. There's some from this. What's the difference? Yeah. It's the same differences in our country of people that live in the Northwest, East Coast, Florida. Florida's its own fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's its own state that, you know, then you have fucking California, then you have the Texas, South. all that kind of crazy shit. So it's just like it's the same, you know, they're living kind of and they're in different countries. But if you're, I don't know. Yeah, if you gave me a map of Central Asia, I probably couldn't put everything correct. Yeah. For the longest time, I thought that Korea was really close to Saudi Arabia. Like, I thought everything was on the western part of China mm-hmm. before. And I think it was because My of geography f- has improved immensely since we started doing this. Yeah. But I will still try to guess a place and then try to look it up and be like, yep, I was way the fuck off. <laughs> so... Kind of getting back to, and, you know, that was just to kind of paint some backstory of who's going to be in command of the UN forces here. So after these uh, failed unification negotiations um, fail, North Korea decides to invade South Korea and basically just sweeps fucking through South Korea. They took Seoul in like three days. I want to say those Seoul's only like three. 30, it's 40 miles. 40 miles from the yeah, DMZ? Yeah, like 35, like 40 miles. Okay. So yes, but at the same time, that's the capital. You would think it would be really fucking defended. But that's the thing is we didn't, we weren't training for war for some reason. I, I get the communists doing it because they felt like they needed Dude, to take Korea. no one Korea. even wanted to hear the word war. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Like, the last thing you want to even have get out in the media at this point, fucking five years after World War II descended, is the word war that's in any way, point. shape, or form. 
So all you're trying to do in this scenario is, especially think of it this way, like I was trying to like break it down. We didn't have a huge standing army because we had all these people coming back. The last thing anybody wanted to do was see anybody that they loved go away again. So, and if that happened, if there was even a whisper of like a draft or anything like that, like right after the war, like keeping a large standing army, I think you would have a ton of people that would get voted out of like office for like congressmen. Because they're like, you're, why are you guys passing this to like keep our like men and kids like that in the army? So I think that's why you do have to keep a smaller force. No one, you know, you just got done fighting a five-year war. The last thing anyone wants to do is sign up or have someone like in a position to have to go to war. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to Google this real quick. So I heard a fact. Um, what would you call like the military population? Yeah. Yeah. I, I service have a, members, number of service members. I, there was something that I had read and I should have written it down. It said that the American like military force went from like 16 million or something like that during world war two down to like 1.8 million Mm -hmm. standing army. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's going to be a long Google, but we reduced our forces quite a bit. Yes. And in doing so, we also reduced our forces quite a bit because we had something called the United nations. Exactly. So this is founded out of world war two. So, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of the UN because, frankly, I didn't look into it enough. UN needs their own episode. Yes, but I understand that at this point in the world, basically during situations which called for a vote where someone could have an intervention in a conflict or anything, there were five countries that got votes. Well, it goes to what's called the UN Security Council. Okay. And these were the five major powers in the world. It was, I think, Spain, England, America, Russia. It was... Okay, so not Spain, I think it was France. France? I think it was the United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, and China. No, because China wasn't recognized yet. Part of of China was, because here's the thing. The nationalist part of it had... Is this where the vote thing got thrown off? Yeah. Because they weren't recognized yet? So China was eventually part of it, but all it took was like a one-member veto, something like that. And so this invasion happens on June 25th, 1950. They North Koreans invade into South Korea, and the UN, which was basically at this point designed to be the world police, they're like, I don't know if they were just, do you think there was some excitement? Like, oh boy, we finally get to do something. Or like, oh shit, what do we fucking do? Uh, I'm sure it was like a first test that they probably weren't yeah. comfortable with because they knew who was just in North Korea that left in 1948. They yeah. knew that the Soviets were uh-huh. there. They knew that this was kind of like their little brothers that they might or might not have been training. Luckily, and I forget the logistics behind why, but Russia had left, like taken like a vacation from the UN Security Council because they were angry. Oh, I think it had something to do with that they let Shanghai Shek escape to Taiwan and they hadn't recognized China yet. So they, yes, they were taking a step away from the delegation from the UN Security Council in show of support of China for not being allowed to be on the security council. So it was like a show of communist solidarity. Well, this invasion happens. The UN security council gets together and is like, we need to step in here. Right. And everyone's like, fuck yeah. And everyone was like, I, no one's there to say nay. So it passes and the UN mobilizes quickly. So you get basically troops moving. You have still UN troops 
It's like 90% American troops were yeah, built I, out of this UN coalition. This was a big thing that I kind of wanted to talk about because I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But just the massive amount. So total troops commitments over the entire war, 1.7 million Americans, uh, 1 to 1.3 million South Koreans. 56,000 British troops, 17,000 Australian troops, 26,000 Canadian troops. Uh, at their peak, all at once, it was over, there was 968,000. And something that I became high and enamored with last night and had to look all these up. Um, and I think it's just because we think of the exclusivity that we've kind of talked about where Asian countries really just kind of stick to themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas the American populace at this point was already pretty intertwined. Yeah. So um, we had more than 100,000 Mexican-Americans that fought in the war. We had 600,000 African-Americans that fought in the war, 7,000 Italian-Americans, and the numbers weren't out in total, but there were 241 Asian-Americans killed in the Korean War. Now, the reason that I bring that up is imagine being a South Korean person who's already entangled in this war with Mm -hmm. the North. And then these UN American troops start showing up and it's the first time that you've seen an African American person in your life or the first time you've seen a Hispanic person in your life. Yeah. First time you've seen an Italian because these guys weren't over there fighting in World War II. Yeah, that's true. So you have these people who are still human, but look absolutely nothing like you that you're seeing showing up to help you. And just the surprise of being like, holy shit, did you see that guy? Yeah. Like it just completely boggles my mind to think that these other people that have occupied the same world that these people have lived mm-hmm. on for thousands yeah, of years. That makes you think like how much of our our non-shock about seeing people that look different than us is completely at a young age just yeah. made as a normal thing, which it should be. But like we've been in a situation where we've seen pictures and had the internet and TV and all movies and all that kind of stuff. You're, you're living in a Korea which has been controlled. You think you're getting a newspaper in that's showing you all this stuff? No, the only people you've seen for at least a generation have been Japanese people, other Korean people, or maybe some Chinese people from yeah. time to time. So you're only seeing other Asian ethnicities coming into your country. Yeah. So I'm sure the culture shock to see these guys was just incredible. Um, North Korean side. This seems a little bit less. Uh, 266 North Koreans, 72,000 Russians had gone in and out. Um, now 66,000, si- huh? 266,000. Yeah. Okay. North Koreans. But, um, on our flip side, when we had 1.7 million American troops and one to 1.3 million South Korean troops, we go 266,000 North Koreans, 2.9 million Chinese troops. Oh yeah. 2.9 million Chinese troops. Yep. And at their peak, they were 1.7 million in the country. Yeah. Just the amount of human capital that the Chinese threw at this war. Just dude, it's insane. so it's so fucking crazy. It's just it's just mass. It's just body mass to throw at it. <laughs> just yeah. like meat weight to try to fucking absorb like damage and try to overrun people. It's fucking insane. Right, so everything just seemed to go North Korea's way for this first Coming little bit. up all North Korea to begin with. Yeah. You had the the UN 
like I said, 21 countries, 90% of the UN's security force, whatever they were called. Uh-huh. I can't remember the exact terminology. And that's not to leave out other countries because there was a bunch of other countries that yes, helped in the everyone, UN. Like, but it was basically like the UN was basically like, guys, pitch in what you can. Yeah. And America was already over in Japan, kind of controlling that area. And that's why Douglas MacArthur got the command because he had already been in that region because Japan had had that. That was kind of his purview to kind of do, um, to handle Korea. So they assigned him, what was it? Army and commander of the Supreme leader. There we go. Or Supreme commander. Supreme commander. Supreme leader is what they called the guy from the North. <laughs> that was our difference. Was leader, one of them was yeah. the leader. The other one was a yeah. commander. So he's provided command. And for the first two months, basically the UN just gets its ass kicked. Yeah. Because uh, well, they're, we the, didn't have a lot of commitment in there yet. And it was mostly, this is the other thing that I get confused with. Um, there's the, RKA or the is the ROKA the Republican or wow Republic of Korea Korea Army then there's also the KPA the Korean People's, People's Army which is also the South I believe nope that's no the is north. that the North okay yep. and that's where you're confusing and then there's the uh, the CVA or something the Chinese Voluntary Army yeah just. Uh, so we're just going to go Chinese, North Koreans, South Koreans, UN, US, because that's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. And again, it's going to be the UN and UN and US forces are going to kind of be inter, intertwined. Yeah. But they're, Roka, uh, the South Koreans just got spanked. And we hadn't had enough US troops there yet to really put up a good fight. Mm-hmm. And so... Well, they, here's the thing, too. The, the North Korean troops, yeah, they were trained and everything, but you had basically... All of this like fucking war material left over by yeah. the Soviets. This is where the fucking tanks come in handy. Yep. Those 300 tanks they left, guess what? You can't stop tanks if you don't have fucking anti-armor you know, weapons or other fucking tanks. And guess who didn't have that? The fucking South Korean army to begin with. And they just got fucking swept to a point where the holdout... Did you catch it? No. Oh, God damn it. You almost almost caught a fly, fly people. What ended up happening is they get pushed back to an area around um, Busan. 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 And Busan is basically like, if you're looking at um, South Korea, it's basically like the four o'clock position, four or five o'clock position. The southeastern quadrant. It's the largest port in in Korea. Uh, The Japanese like really improved it during World War II and everything when they were covering that. So they were able to get a ton of men and material from the UN forces into this port. But at one point, basically the perimeter by September of that year, so you go from June to September, the UN forces were in a 140-mile perimeter. Now, 140 miles, yeah, you may say that sounds like a lot. They only controlled 10% inside that perimeter between that perimeter and the ocean, 10% of Korea. That's all that fucking North Korea was in control of at that point. And. One of their lucky moves is as they retreated into Pusan, there's a river that actually sort of runs that kind of outlines this Pusan area. The Nakdong River. The what? Nakdong River. The Nakdong River, yeah. Uh, As they were coming through, they're just like, we're probably need to get a fortify this. Let's just blow up all the bridges Mm -hmm. along the river before these guys keep coming in. Yeah. And as we're talking about this, um, this is something that is, uh, there's, always a dark side of war and none of it's ever really bright. I think there's more of a dark side of war. <laughs> yeah. There's always, you, you don't say, but, but 
this to me seems like it's almost something that's forgotten is all of these communists that are coming down from North Korea that are flooding into this country aren't just fighting the army. They're not just fighting the South Korean army. They're going through and anybody that is considered a refugee that is trying to run from the North Koreans is going to have to try to follow the South Koreans and the UN forces that are there. Now, as they crossed over into Pusan and blew up these bridges, that stopped any of the refugees that were trailing behind them to get across. A little early. Yeah. They were a little bit premature before the, the North Korean forces even got there. And not only that, like you're saying, you know, you not only have army flowing back, you have all these refugees that are getting, that are, South Korean refugees that are getting pushed from the border and, you know, fucking Seoul and all that kind of shit back. And those that are staying, man, you want to talk about some fucking like war crimes and shit. Like once this is basically the whole Korean war is basically just a, it's a tug of war. It's like the tug of war that you see where one team almost wins and gets the rope across and then it goes all the way fucking back. And then it goes all the way back the other way. It's this crazy, like huge pendulum swing of a war. And as these cities and areas are changing hands that were once North Korean and once South Korean and everything like that, you have people that can't run and like civilians are getting fucking slaughtered. Yeah. They said as far as the number of civilian deaths, that the Korean War surpassed. I got that number. Fucking World War Two. I got that number. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll we'll name that number in a second. Uh, just to drive home his tug of war point, Seoul changes hands four separate times during this war, and like twice or three times in this uh, course of like one year. Yeah, it, it, it ain't much. It, it's not a long time, but this hold that they have on Pusan, they're. Holding their own. Uh, they're getting attacked from all different directions. They take the first... Uh, I believe this was like one of their first offensive... It was still their first offensive push. Basically, they get pushed back. And once they get to a stopping point that they can stop getting pushed back um, on that Nakdong River around Pusan, they still have all this UN support flowing into the port and everything. Well, So basically, and- it's building up their forces. Because you can't just like get a couple forces and start pushing back. Basically, they're consolidating strength and then going to make a huge push. Our big deal, though, is being pushed back to where that is. It's close enough to Japan to where we can start sending the air superiority and the support. Yes, that area that area can be protected from the air. And not only that, but there's also two aircraft carriers that they have in that area. So they're launching fairly close to be able to beat back the North Koreans just with air assaults. And essentially at the beginning of this, the North Koreans, they don't have an air force. Uh -uh. It's not like it's there's funding and like development of an air force in these countries. So it's complete air superiority in the range that these American fighters can be. Some of them are still some World War II era fighters, the Corsairs, the one with the like bent up bow uh-huh. wings. And then um, they're also uh, were introduced. This was the uh, introduction of the jet fighter, carrier launch jet fighters. Oh, no way. Yeah, so they were flying huh. both of them at the same time. Damn, I didn't so realize they were fun, that old. Fun little aviation fact. And I do have to pee, so okay. we're going to take a break. Oh, my God, Adam. What is, what is that up in the sky? It, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's socials. Oh my God. It's faster than Instagram. That's historically high pod on Instagram. More powerful than X. It's historically high, historically HI on X. Able to leap tall threads in a single bound. Back to historically high pod on threads. And I mean, I guess there's still Gmail, right? We got that too. That is historically high podcast at gmail.com. All right, guys, back to the show. 
All right, and we're back. All right, so we're we're still in Pusan, right? Yeah, we're still in Pusan. Um, we're coming up to, I would say, MacArthur's like one good thing that he did, and he just kind of fell into it. Uh, we were trying to figure out, or the U.S. UN was trying to figure out the best course of attack. And the best course of attack they believed was going to be trying to hit one of these other ports that was more northern and cut off the supply lines because as they move down through South Korea, their supply lines get longer and longer. And eventually, if we can get those supply lines cut off, then they're not going to be able to continue fighting and we can just kill off whoever's down there. So, like you said, this is kind of MacArthur's, like, big positive contribution to this whole thing and i'm not gonna lie some of it has got to be born out of hubris it was such a bad plan exactly so that's what i'm saying the i don't know if the success is just like great execution and planning or if it might have been luck too yep so basically the plan is if you're looking at um uh, south korea like a clock this will help to kind of explain it you have busan down at like four and five o'clock position up at like 10 or 11 o'clock you have um what's the port called Lushan? Lushan. Yeah. So MacArthur's plan is to basically take, because he has um, Marines in, um, he has like a division or two, a couple of divisions of Marines that he basically has in Japan, or they're starting to, you know, consolidate forces. He basically can take them and move them up the west side of Korea into Lushan and attack the port and land them there. If he can land enough guys, he can basically cut off even then the retreat of the North Korean and basically trapped them between Busan and this army coming down. Like you said, cut off their supply line, then they're not going to be able to even retreat or really function and then try to box them in. And the problem that we talk about with this is there were two ports. There was Lushan that was north and then there was another more southerly port. Southerly port was going to be a lot easier to hit. Um, Lushan creates issues because there's only like one way into the port and one way out of the port. Like there was uh, an entry lane and an exit lane. Yeah. Uh, it was only like three hours of the day that they could actually land a fighter or a carrier to drop off a bunch of troops because of just how shallow this port was. Yeah. They said that the, the problems were that there was a limited entry point and they thought that they'd already mined it. And that the high tide, low tide was really like severe. Uh-huh. So at high tide, it would cover these big mud flats and you could get all the way up to like the um, fucking piers and everything. But then at low tide, all these like mud flats were exposed and there would be basically you couldn't walk across them or get landing craft across them. And um, fucking MacArthur was like, nope, fuck it. We're doing this. He's like, because if I can do this and make this work, he's like, and part of it had to been that fucking, I heard someone refer to it as like that World War II halo. He felt like he could do no wrong. Could be part of that. He's like, I could pull this shit off. And if I do pull this shit off, we can just cut off their army completely and we can be home by, he, he told Truman that this should be done by Thanksgiving. Initially, (laughs) he has a penchant for trying to hit holidays with what he wants to do. Yes. And so, Somehow or another, through great execution, this actually does get pulled off. It was just dumb luck because had the Chi- or had the Koreans heard about the the North Koreans, had they heard about it, all they had to do was sit along the high ground with artillery and just rein in as they were coming into the port, mm-hmm. like it or was, not even let the ships establish themselves yeah. and be able to just fire out to sea. They did actually have information about it because the um, Chinese were watching this whole thing develop. 
and they were kind of probing. And I think Mao even sent some of his people into China or into Korea and was like, hey, what do we think are the weaknesses here? They were kind of helping them out. They had incentive to do that because they were also paying them back for helping them yeah. in, in their civil war. So they had actually told North Korea or North Korean command or whoever was in charge, hey, these are spots there you could be vulnerable at, and we think you should reinforce them. One of them was Lushan, and they just didn't listen. Well, they believed that the more southerly port was the easier one to hit, so mm-hmm. that would be where they would go Because it was closer to Japan, too. Closer to Japan, it was just deeper. It was easier to land a, a carrier to drop people off with. Well, it went off with, without a hitch, and only 20 casual, or actually 20 deaths, uh, actually were um, taken by the UN forces. So they get they end up getting like a hundred thousand soldiers into Lushan, right? Yeah, they dropped a lot. And somehow, I'm trying to figure out. At this point, the um, North Korean forces realized that the supply train was getting hit through communications, and needed to start basically trying to pull back, or else they were going to get cut off. Well, the biggest issue that allowed the North Koreans to get back up was there was an airfield that was right next to Lushan. Uh, that would have been the first airfield that the UN could have established as somewhere to launch up into North Korea had mm-hmm. they needed to. And we'll see, they decided to. But also Seoul was so close to Lushan that they their direct mission, instead of just running across and cutting these supply lines, mm-hmm. was to try to recapture Seoul. Oh, okay. So, And in doing so, they concentrated so much on Seoul that it left the whole entire eastern side of Korea yeah. still open. So they were just able to follow their way back up Here's what's so fucking crazy about this, too, is we're not talking about... We talk about this as, like, it's a battlefield. Yeah. Like, they go up this way and they go down this way. This is a fucking country that these, <laughs> like, armies are fucking crossing. It ain't crossing. small. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like they went this way, you know, on Tuesday and they came back this way on Wednesday. They're moving entire armies, like, around this country, but, like, trying to also catch each other. Also, something I did not know about fucking Korea, craziest fucking weather. Yeah. You think of, No like, idea about per- the cold. Yeah, you would think in like, but when you see it on a map and you're like, oh, that's fucking Russia. Like, that's along the same lines as like that northern China and everything. Yeah. You're like, oh, shit, that does make sense. Very like rocky and like hilly and everything like that. And yeah, apparently extreme winters, like 30 below, which we will get examples of here pretty soon. Yeah, there were dudes that had served in World War II that talked about knowing that some of those days spent over in France were like the coldest days of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And this doesn't compare. They said that it Bastogne does not compare to the cold that they felt in Korea. Why the fuck do you have anyone that fought in Bastogne <laughs> fighting in another fucking war? Like there should be certain exemptions of yeah. things you did in war that would get you out of like another fucking war. Or like, why is this guy there fighting so fucking early in this thing? There was another one. I, I, I hate that I don't remember his name, but he was actually he had survived the Bataan Death March. Yes, I heard about him. And too. he was in Korea too. Yeah. If you survived the Bataan Death March, you should just come back. They should give you a house. They should give you as many wives as you, you should want. Never, and you should never be allowed to be in the military no. again. Yeah. You, you, like, I want to be in the like, retirement. You, you did it. Yeah. You're not a pro wrestler. You, you've lived through enough mm-hmm. just right off into the sunset. Um, so, yeah, they MacArthur's forces that they dropped in Lushan took back over Seoul. They gained. Uh, just a tactical victory getting this uh, airstrip, which is huge because, like I say, beyond where they were 
had the aircraft carriers down by Pusan, uh-huh. they didn't have a footprint to be able to launch planes. Yeah. So being able to launch planes down there at the aircraft, but getting somewhere strategically higher on that western side to be able to launch across the 38th parallel, very good. For, for fire support. Yeah. Now, at the same time, like, there's a ton of, like, American bombers in Japan that are actually able to fly over. So while Pusan is going on as well, that's not just saying it's just, like, the ground force is fighting. Trying to go ahead and hold these guys back and basically keep this Pusan um, perimeter from collapsing, you have all of these bombers taking off and just basically, like, trying to level and, like, yeah. go after, like, the supply trains and everything like that of the North Koreans. So... The Americans have, like, the whole point of this is MacArthur thought that because of our technological advancement and superiority, we didn't need as much manpower to win. That was his whole thing. He's like, he's like I could do with, you know, 50,000, but because of all of the fucking tanks and artillery and my big guns and, like, the air support, they'll do the work of 300,000. Well, we don't need to commit so much of the human element because we already have so much of the tactical shit ready. Exactly, yeah. And... Once Seoul is taken, MacArthur just has the brilliant idea of... uh, He told Truman (laughs) that he had intelligence that the Chinese were never going to enter the war. Yes. And so he he didn't want to just push back and just keep what they had. He wanted to continue on into North Korea and try to push it Get him fucking back to the 30 or 38th parallel, push him on the other side, and then... That's it. That's good. That's where we established this originally. Yes. Just and get then, all and, your shit back. Don't push for it. And then let the UN try to figure this shit out yeah. and try to like step in and try to negotiate this. But I do believe that MacArthur still had a bee in his ass because he was so focused on Japan and on Asia in World War II. Mm-hmm. We were still trying to build up Europe. We were still trying to rebuild Europe and create them off of World War II back into a powerhouse that could benefit us, but yeah. then also protect themselves. MacArthur believed that the communist parties that were in China and in Asia still at the time were like the number one threat to democracy in the world. So he wanted to focus on Asia enough to where he wanted to take back over Korea and then push up into Manchuria in Asia, which uh, I just, I, I don't... Gotta fight back that red menace. Yeah, it's absolutely... It's not that I mean, like... Do I ever come off like as a communist? No, I feel like since we've learned more about communism and things, though, I think we're a little bit more like, hey, like you've said on many occasions, if communism's better, just let it work and see if it beats capitalism. If capitalism is the shit, just let capitalism do its thing. And if it snuffs out communism, I I can't tell you how many times I thought this (laughs) during this entire thing. And that's what fucking the I think the whole point of, you know, the splitting of North and South Korea and putting installing those was was trying to fucking sneakily do. Yeah. I, it just, it was incredible. He, he wanted to push up and this was to be able to tell president Truman, Hey, the Koreans aren't going to, or the Chinese aren't going to get into this. If we were only fighting the North Koreans, this would have been over so fast. Once we hit Lushan and once we push them yeah. back, like if we had just stopped there, good. But they, if the Chinese a, had indeed they never, take, they took a hunt, like over a hundred thousand prisoners at Pusan. Once they ended up like those, and those were the ones they were able to box off. Like they still escaped a whole bunch of the army and stuff escaped back into North Korea, but not enough to like be able to even defend that whole area. Excuse me. Well, and not only were the captures of the people, but they had left 
a lot of their tanks and other things that had been destroyed yes. down there. So and, and at that point, too, you were getting all of these more advanced tanks coming in from the UN yeah. and the US and everything. You were trying to move that. Their that war capital there. was so little in North Korea that they, unless they got restocked ever again, they probably weren't going to be a threat. Mm-hmm. But that push up to the north and push up into Manchuria after saying the Chinese were never going to be involved, I mean... If you're going to threaten another country, and I'm not trying to be an apologist for communism like we were just talking about, but if you're trying to push up into another country's borders because you want to try to overthrow their government, they're probably going to have some shit to say about it, right? Like, they're not going to be like, okay, you'll stop at the Yalu? Okay. Well, here's the thing, too, is how do you not have, like, intelligence was such a, like, a crucial part of World War II, like, intelligence gathering yeah. How do you not have some type of like intelligence gathering arm? You're in charge of like the Pacific theater, like it, Japan at the very least. Like one of MacArthur's things should have been like, I would like to know what's going on in China. I want daily briefings on what's going on mm-hmm. in all the closest other countries around me. I want to know who in North Korea is talking to China. How friendly are they? What's Russia doing? Like, how do you not? even think I know. And I know like you were saying, he told Truman a bunch of times. He's like, China wouldn't dare. He's like, they, they don't, they don't want this smoke. China don't want this smoke. Well, in his words again, I know the Oriental mind. Yes. And so he's just like, what, what did he expect to just like jam and like crush all of like the North Koreans into Manchuria? And they'd be like, here, there you go. Take them. You're well, not allowed to come back was, in. He wanted to enter Manchuria. He wanted to cross the Yalu into China. Yes. Because he wanted to try to snuff out communism, which seems wild because right to the West, you have a very large communist country too, but you don't want to fuck with them. You don't want to go after the Soviets. And you're somehow saying that they're just not going to fucking get involved. Like you don't think the communists are going to support the other communists. Like you're trying to snuff out this little part of communists. Like, no, they want a communist buffer between Mm -hmm. you and and that shit. Yeah, you, You need that. And, and the time frame that this takes place. So like in September, you basically have the Pusan perimeter. And then by October, you have MacArthur's forces moving on North Korea, yeah. pushing up. So like, that's how fast. And this is why this thing lasted like a, as a hot war, like three years, but like shit is fucking uh, popping I, off. Would you even say it was a hot war for three years? Yeah. Because during that last two parts of the year, there wasn't the ceasefire. There was the negotiations, but guys were still getting killed in well, battle. They were, but they were already at the bargaining table for like a year and a half. So they weren't really gaining ground back and forth. I'm saying as long as guys were dying. Okay. Yeah. Then it's a hot war. If guys are <laughs> killing guys from the other side and everything, it's considered a hot war for okay. me. So you basically have MacArthur moving all the way up into North Korea, gaining a bunch of ground quickly, all the way up to what is called the Yalu River. And that's what separates North Korea from Manchuria and basically mainland China. I think it also separates that sliver of uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, whatever it was at the time. And as <laughs> they, as he gets up there, he's basically told by Truman that don't, he, doesn't he get a warning? He's like, don't go any further. Yeah. You did your job. Yeah. And he was getting this the entire time probably like, hey, we told you not to do this. The way that MacArthur thought he could, like, act with complete just... Zero oversight. Exactly. Just complete... Is it impunity? Yeah. Just complete impunity. Like, and I understand that as he was publicly loved at this time, because the American public only saw all the good things that he did. He was more popular at this time to the public than Truman was. Enough so to the fact where even, like, the Joint Chiefs of Staff 
were almost like afraid in a way to like try to give MacArthur orders because I think they also knew that if MacArthur came back and ran for president, he would get elected and then he would be their boss and be able yeah. to tell them shit to do. Well, and it's sort of hard to tell a guy no that came up with this Lushan plan that completely changed the war. So now the public is like, holy shit, he's a genius. He's yeah. done it again. But, but even in government, how can you question a guy that just like changed an and entire civil war? He's, he's winning. As he moves up there, it yeah. looks like we're doing really good winning. He got Sol back. Everything's looking good. And I just, I love the fact that this is how it all goes. Um, and we're just going to go to this and then we're going to go back a little bit. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So he's moves forces into North Korea at the beginning of October, 1950, October 19th, the Chinese forces crossed the Yalu river, which he said was never going to happen and entered into the war. And they basically within a matter of like months, I wouldn't, yeah, maybe two months had pushed them back all the way to recapture Seoul by like December. So do you have the information? Are we going to talk about, um, yeah, I just wanted to point out how dumb MacArthur's oh, thought okay, process gotcha. was. You weren't skipping over that entire part. I was like a lot, a lot of shit. Happened. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. I just wanted to drive home so, that MacArthur said they were never going to enter the war. Was it 200,000? Cause I heard 300,000 could have been, I heard 300,000 troops were able to cross this. And here's the thing. They would cross at night and they weren't using roads. That's how they were able to stay hidden. 300,000 Chinese troops were able to cross in. And they, at some point, they um, kind of consolidated around this area called the Chosen Reservoir, right? Yeah. And basically set up a trap because they knew that guess who was going to keep coming well, we'll up? Get to coming it. up. We'll, we'll talk about the trap. But this is just to point out that it took them so little time to prove MacArthur wrong then to take back everything that they had taken yes. and then to recapture Seoul. Yeah. So in a matter of months, the, MacArthur the went to being of this is fucking <laughs> yeah. nuts. MacArthur went to being like a fucking genius, like the guy that we're all going to follow into battle to being so wrong that he lost every gain that he was the one not that personally gain, pushed. Like, I, I can't like <laughs> Korea's not enormous. No, but at the same time, it's moving an entire like forces yeah. over the course of an entire country, and at the same time too, like we said, all the civilians that are getting caught up in this. Yeah, and it's I mean, I wonder if the people in Seoul had like a North Korean flag and a South Korean flag, and they were just watching out the window, north and south, mm -hmm. and. If they saw a big barrage coming from the south, they dropped the North Korean flag and ran up the South Korean flag. Yeah. And then as they were coming back, if they saw a push from the north coming, the other one. <laughs> they just swapped it back yeah. and forth. But you just yeah. have two flags behind your back. You're not sure which one to pull out. <laughs> so now we're going to throw it back to October 1st. October 1st is when the UN troops had crossed the 38th parallel like we were talking about. And uh, Chairman Mao, at the request of Stalin, uh, Stalin basically was like, ugh. We set this whole thing up. I don't really want to get my hands dirty. Let's send a cable over to Mao and let's see if he wants to introduce a few battalions. So what the agreement was, and I mean, I, I can only imagine what it was like at the fucking UN, but the agreement between the three of them was, is he was like, listen, Mao, he's like, I, I have all the equipment and the goods. I'll provide you guys with like MIGs and you can fight against the air cover um, I'll provide you guys the uh, armaments and the ammunition. He's like, I just need you to provide the guys. And Mao was like, we have a shit ton of those. Yeah. We have more than we know what to fucking do with, apparently, as, like, <coughs> come to find out. But so basically he got all these guys armed, 
and basically sent. He's like, what? He said five or six divisions. And a I think division it was, is yeah. ten or twenty thousand. It's different per country too. Well, yeah. I mean, their <coughs> excuse me, their divisions. I think were pretty thick divisions just because of the amount pretty, of soldiers. They were thick sent. divisions. Yeah. I'm going to look up what a thick division is. So. From the 1st to the 19th, we have these 300,000 troops that you were talking about coming down on. And then we see the beginnings of phase one of the Chinese offensive that started October 10,000 to 15,000. Huh? 10,000 to 15,000. Shit, that's a lot. Yeah. So phase one of the Chinese offensive, <coughs> sorry, starts uh, October 25th. They just started attacking the UN forces. And as soon as China saw, or as soon as the Soviets saw China come in and just start whooping ass. They're like, Hey, we'll send you some planes. We got some shit Mm -hmm. for you. Like just because you actually did it and held up your end of the deal, we'll start giving you some air support. And and here's what I'm saying is it's not, I do not believe it for a second that there were no Russian pilots in those. Like who did we just provide those to? We just provided like the MiGs to China. Yeah. And what are we going to expect them to do? Like not backward engineer and then have, because even though like they were both communist countries, one of them had to be the dominant communist country. And so there was even some shit between like fucking the Soviet Union and China as far as who was going to be like the dominant form of communism or like daddy communism. Well, and I also think that, (coughs) excuse me, the Soviets had that cachet because they had been doing it longer. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I'm saying that like, like in relation to like the Cold War never having like Russians fighting Americans. Of course, there was this spy and espionage shit, but there was definitely like fighter pilots that at least engaged yeah. with Russian fighter pilots that killed each other. So, well, like I said, they had <coughs> God damn it, um, like seventy five thousand Russians Soviets were in the war. Yeah, so they they had committed a certain amount. I think there was like eighteen hundred of them more pilots. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of commitment, but when you're talking about the amount of Chinese to Russians, it's just like a thousand to one. Yeah. So we had the <coughs> God. I need a drink real quick. Go ahead, wet your whistle. You know who didn't have a lot of supplies and water? <laughs> Probably some of these guys we're going to discuss. Yeah, things get really rough. Um, just the first real showdown that happens uh, between U.S. troops and the Chinese was November 1st, deep in North Korea. Um, they had basically circled the 8th Cavalry, just had punched through kind of some of the more thin parts. I think it's called a pincer move mm-hmm. when you just punch through a line. Yeah, Some of the thinner areas at the front line and were able to surround them. They and said this was at the Battle of uh, Unsan, which I believe was up by the um, yeah, because it was they there weren't a lot, there were only 1700 oh. U.S. soldiers in this, and they said that they came down literally like like human waves, like out of the hills, would come down just with small arms, just like yelling. And it was the sheer like they had machine guns and were just mowing guys down, piling bodies. They said it was just the sheer mass of people that were just recklessly charging. Yeah, and it would finally just overwhelm. They would, they were melting barrels of their fucking machine guns, just firing so many rounds. Dude, that blew me away when they said that some of their machine guns had to be taken out of service because their barrels had melted from firing so many rounds so fast. Yeah. like that's uh, just the thought in of, single engagements, not like over the course of the fucking war. Yeah. 
yeah. like in single engagements. So uh, one of the things that we're going to talk, well, we'll just talk about it now and understand that kind of from this point on, the Chinese had this very weird way of communication between their forces, mm-hmm. and it was through music. So you would hear through the hills and coming over mountains, uh, these drums being beaten, these, I, I don't know exactly what it was. I'm sure there were some woodwinds in there because mm-hmm. that seems like sort of an Asian thing. But they were communicating directions to travel between these big battalions yeah. and these big groups through music. So just to think of how brilliant that is, but how goddamn scary is it if you're just in the middle of nowhere? psychological mindfuck. Yeah. Dude. You're just trying to sleep and you're just hearing... You don't know which direction that means. You don't even know that that you're means like, is troops. That, you're like, is that signaling a charge? Are they fucking charging right now? Yeah. I, they, like, they said when they were fighting at night, they would have mortars launch up flares to provide light. And in the flare light, they would literally just light up and it would just be a wave of them charging at you. And you'd have to just start firing and everything. And that was their move, was they always kind of seemed to like to work under the guise of darkness and then they would just pull back and just disappear and melt back and they were like how the fuck are these people like doing this well guess what this is their fucking land yeah and, they- and that was their move after this battle at unsan we pulled back everybody that we had the un did the u.s Here, here's the thing too that provided confirmation or actually it provided confirmation to anyone who fucking could see the writing on the wall that china had china has entered yeah, the game you, you would like, think and so because they had captured Chinese soldiers who were very openly saying, yes, I'm from Manchuria or I'm from China. And basically um, fucking MacArthur was like, no, these are actually like volunteers who like used to live in Korea, but then moved to China or coming back to defend. They're not actual like members of like the Chinese, like actual yeah. army. Well, th- what he's saying and what he's getting is the Chinese have, they're a lot like the Americans. They really have no reason to be there. These people are pulled off of their farms and off of their ranches in China to be a part of this volunteer army force that's coming over there. And so once they get captured, they don't really give a shit about holding state secrets. They're going to tell you their whole entire life story. So as they're hearing this, MacArthur's like, ah, that was somebody that's not cool with communism that decided to come to North Korea. So they're Chinese for sure by origin, but they were just in North Korea when it happened. There's not a hundred thousand of these other dudes coming over with him. This is just like one in a few. So as soon as he's saying that, I mean, I'm sure at that point, because this was November and they had already taken back Seoul. Like, I don't know how fast that news travels, but there had to have been some other rumblings of seeing Chinese in there fighting their way into Seoul. So before everybody back home knew it, I'm sure everybody on the ground knew it. Yeah. Because you also see different fighting styles. You start to hear the music and the drums that are coming down. You see that these people are a little bit better trained than the North Koreans. Can you imagine just being the guy in your unit and being like, I'm going to fucking figure out what these are. Yeah. And then just like all of a sudden, like between different units, you start to piece together what this means. It's like if you're hearing 10 drum beats, it's going to be a flank maneuver to the right and everything and trying to develop. Because there were people trying to probably figure that shit out. Yeah. Well, if you hear a flute solo, everybody ducked because there's going to be an airstrike coming down. Like yeah. Just a, a very weird way to do it. But after they pulled off from this Unsan and we went south, they just went back north. They didn't continue this threat. So they set a trap that basically everybody back in America after hearing this big fight that happened, we're like, 
they just intervened because we got too close. Like, yeah. not that big of a deal. They just went back home. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is cool. Uh, so the UN just pushed forward into the mountains to try to chase in there to make sure that they had crossed back over into yeah. China. And boy, did they not. So coming to November 27th, now this is where... Oh, this is the Reservoir Battle Choshin. Yes. So also, this is where we start to get into winter. And like I was saying before, man, apparently Korean winter is fucking insane, like 30 below. Um, You basically had like 30,000 U.S. troops. I think they might have been Marines. um, And against 120,000 Chinese troops. And basically... I can't remember why exactly the Chinese had said the chosen reservoir. They had kind of set a trap. And when I say trap, I mean like they had troops encircled miles and miles and miles out to where they could draw in the American troops closer to the reservoir and then just slowly like encircle on them. Part of our deal that became such an issue was like when you were talking about how we committed more artillery than we did humans. Uh When we're chasing them up there, we can only go the route that a tank can go. Or yes. We can only go the route that roads. Are, we yeah. have to be going on roads. And the whole point about why these fucking Chinese soldiers were so effective is because they didn't have artillery or anything like that. They were moving through the trees and just firing, you know, the rifles that they had. Yeah, they had like machine guns and stuff, but it was just sheer manpower and being able to like sneak up on you. Yeah. So the um, Marines are set up around the Chosen Reservoir, which was designated kind of like a strategic position because apparently it was a man-made reservoir that the Japanese had made years before, but it provided power to places in Manchuria for like manufacturing and that kind of shit. So the Chinese wanted it. And basically on November 27th, it's freezing fucking cold up there. They're losing guys to... um, fucking like just the elements to exposure and everything to literally freezing to death yep there is a guy that's in charge of this of the marines up there and his name was last name was smith i can't remember what his his first name was but he kind of saw the writing on the wall and wasn't in a position that he wanted to go up against the chinese he saw the error in that but he was getting these orders from macarthur to keep pushing so he pushed very slowly at times and he actually established an airfield close by and then also like a bunch of like um, storage depots where they could store supplies and all that kind of stuff because he knew kind of just because he was there closest to it he was there getting the information from the captured Chinese soldiers what are your strengths they knew that there were a lot of Chinese soldiers in that area he was where MacArthur should have been exactly and so he basically is trying to strategically drag his feet to take more time trying to get to the north while establishing a strong defensible position and it ended up paying off, I mean, as, as much as it could. Because during this battle, there were 17,000 U.S. casualties. And again, U.S. Casual, or casualties, the term covers both wounded, unable to fight, and then also killed. Mm-hmm. Compared to 52,000 Chinese casualties. And this goes to show you not only the preparedness that this guy had set up his Marines for, despite receiving information to pretty much do the contrary, versus the tactics of the Chinese to basically just try to throw fucking meat at the grinder until it stops running. Well, like we say, you would think in a normal battle that if you killed 52,000 or had 52,000 casualties on the other side, you would definitely be the winner. Yeah. But the fact that they just had so many people, it ended up having to be kind of a miraculous escape 
to where they had ended up retreating away after they being surrounded. They didn't consider it a retreat. They weren't allowed to use that term. Like uh, MacArthur wouldn't allow them to use that. So it was a, um, it was a a reverse um, advance. I think is what they called it. Something like that. It was supposed to be something fucking like a reverse advance. I mean, yeah. that, it makes total sense. But it, it just incredibly, this they were able to hold them off because they had started this reverse advance and were able to break away December 6th. They didn't escape fully from that situation until the 11th. So they still had to hold court for five days in order to get themselves out. Like Just to think that you're, the boats finally show up and you're starting to get people, you're starting to load them on the boats, but then you're still having to fight everybody off and able to give them time to yeah. do it. Like, the last guys on the boat on the 11th have to be like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Excuse me. And they weren't sent back to America. They were just sent back below the 38th parallel to strengthen that line. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is, like, you would... Um, one of the things you actually text me was the amount of companies that got wiped out when you were hearing about these units getting wiped out and you're like, how are these guys getting like down to like 10% or 10 guys left in a unit or entire units getting wiped out. Yeah. And I think it's because, so you have, first of all, like less divisions and less, you know, companies and whatever here. So at that point, because you have less guys, you're basically just having to make do with them and keep them in those positions longer than they should be. Usually in world war two, at least when it was, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say functioning like it should, Mm -hmm. but you would basically have units that would go out on missions. And if they were depleted below a certain strength, they were pulled back off the line and tried a new unit was tried to fill in until they could recover their strength. Ideally it didn't always happen like that, but you literally have people stuck in positions where they don't even have time to do that. And because they're smaller, you know, units and everything, yeah. companies, they're just getting wiped out. Well, <laughs> just the, the thought of some of these, I don't remember. And again, I don't know why I don't give these people their credit and their due because this is just amazing shit. But there was one company, I think it was in the army. It might've been a cavalry where I think they were 1200 deep and, um, they had six purple heart survivors because they were the only, survivors that made it out Jesus. of that amount of people. Out of like the original ones? Yeah. Because you'd have replacements come in, but from like the original ones that showed up the, there. They were in their surprising. group, their battalion or whatever it was. It was like from 1,200 down to the six people that escaped alive. Like yeah. how is that even a number that you can think of to go from that many people just down to six? And how do we not know about this kind of stuff? Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's why, you know, that, that term, the forgotten war is so apt for this shit. So after that, they ended up escaping. They're sent back down to, I don't know if they were sent to Busan or, like you said, just somewhere more in the south of Korea to at least try to regain strength or get reinforced from troops from Japan. Yeah, I think that the majority of them went, but there were some that were taken. It was another skirmish that had happened out of the Hungmon City or Hung Hungam City, and they were just pulled out of there because they were being overrun in that same city. And they were brought down to Pusan because 105 soldiers doesn't sound like a terrible boost. But it's, I mean, it was probably decent. Like, to see 105 guys that were there with guns more. The other issue that we run into is everybody that was there was either somebody new, (coughs) excuse me, that was brought in or somebody that was a battle-hardened veteran. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you're fighting in such a different atmosphere and climate and situation than you were that your training is not going to be your training from World War II isn't going to cross over. No, they as well. said that there was just like a lapse. There was a bunch of um, officers that came back, and like some of these guys were thrown into shit so quickly. And when I say quickly, you're supposed to have like a process of when you get somewhere, you're supposed to able to like sight your weapon in and do all that kind of shit. Like at the, at the bare minimum to sight your weapon, yep, in, to make they, sure that your weapon can accurately shoot yes, in a straight line. Some of them did not even have the opportunity to sight in their weapons. I'm not shitting you in this. They were sent to the front without having an opportunity to sight in their weapon. And guess what? You can't just go to the firing range when you're on the front, when you're trying to be fucking quiet. So some of these guys hadn't even had their weapons sighted in that they were sending to go ahead and, and fight in some of these battles. Your firing range is just a group of Chinese people running at you. They you said that somehow out. the training drop off and there was so much focus on certain things that stayed away from the common like soldiering and marksmanship and that kind of stuff. The The training for soldiers got way too involved in like, um, I don't know if it was like diplomacy or like classroom theory about other battles and like tactics and stuff like that, that actual like abilities just to like clean and load your rifle in a, a reasonable amount of time were like lost arts and yeah. shit. And I mean, you, this is why you're seeing so much of this like slingshot thing of back and forth. Like, why can't, you know, why can't the UN just hold their ground? It's because not only are you not getting a ton of guys in here, but you're not getting quality guys. The best and the brightest. And that's is not, not to say anything about the guys that were fighting here. They were put in a horrible position. And they were brave as shit to be there and yes. not just try to hide. Yeah. And then and you had your officers being like, I got to keep these guys alive. So you had guys trying hard to, yeah. to get these guys into better positions. It was a failure from the top. Yep. 100%. Um, December 11th, 1950, <laughs> it was just... Uh, disgustingly bad battle. Um, it was the Chong Kong, Chong Kong You'll get it. Keep river. Going. Chong Kong river. Um, there was 11,000 U S casualties compared to 45,000 Chinese casualties. And this war was so bad and so bloody that this was the first time where America's like, Hey, ceasefire. Maybe this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should just go ahead. We'll call up China and be like, hey, our guy said you weren't going to come into this, but now that you are into this, do you just maybe want to stop? Here's the thing, too, is if you kind of remember toward the end of, it may not seem like it for the beginning of World War II, but by the end of World War II, war journalism had really taken off. Oh, really? Yes. And so now you have situations where, you know, cameras are more readily available, all that kind of stuff. So you have basically this type of information for casualties and stuff. It gets out to the public a lot faster than the government being able to keep all these like reports under wraps. So now you're having to deal with public opinion. So that's exactly, I think, what contributes to that ceasefire type shit is like, fuck, we lost, you know, yeah, we lost 11,000 compared to 45,000. We still just lost 11,000 in a war that no one really kind of understands, aside from communism, why we're even over yeah. there to begin with. Well, and then at the same time, too, when you've had to print, say, a month and a half's worth of articles talking about how you just lost ground that day or how you lost a big offensive. And every single time mm -hmm. you're putting it out there, your casualties numbers are just getting higher and worse mm -hmm. and worse and worse. And you're losing ground. Yeah. Like you said, you're having to – it's not like we – there's no gains. This many casualties took this, and we gained this amount. It's we lost and we lost. You haven't even plateaued. You've just gone straight back downhill. So they request the ceasefire. China, you know, rejects the ceasefire, 
And then good old MacArthur gets uh, he gets a wild hair. Yeah. So this this catches us back up to when I said that they had come in and taken um, Soul. Yes. Again. So just a, just a <laughs> wild thought. It's already been used a couple times not too long ago. MacArthur sa- starts thinking about you know I don't think any weapons should be off the table on this, including our nuclear option. Maybe we need to start dropping some uh, some nukes over on the North Korean side. And maybe, maybe even strategically, if if the Chinese are helping out, maybe we drop a couple over on you know on their side of it. So, I'm going to tell them myself here because I still have conflicting feelings about when we had the the atomic bomb talk during Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. I still don't really know. Was that I mean, during Pearl Harbor or Oppenheimer? Uh, Oppenheimer and Pearl Harbor, okay. I think both of them, because I think we had talked about the. Revenge There's a lot to talk Pearl about Harbor. on that yeah. on that subject. But just the feelings that I have about atomic weaponry and in doing the research and reading and hearing the amount of people that they just continue to lose in each battle after like the fifth battle that they had lost where it was like double digit casualties, mm-hmm. my mind was just like, uh, maybe, like maybe we just dropped the atomic bomb on them. Like completely neglecting the thought of like, if we do it a second time to an Asian country and we show like, this is our go-to whenever yeah. we're in a, a situation where we not can't only is win. it our go-to, but like if you people in this part of the world are fucking up, this is what you're going to yeah. get. And then you also have at this point, I'm sure the Soviet union would come out and be like, Hey, we got one too. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. So you have these two superpowers that are already in this cold war. Like, hey, we had 10 guys over there. Yeah. Oh, we didn't think yet. Anyway, they were ten businessmen, ten yep. civilians. So how do you? I mean, you don't. Right, well, That's and then the like I point. say, every single and everyone time, else was like, you don't. Every single time I would hear another casualty count, I was like, fuck, maybe he's right. But then just completely neglecting everything we just talked about, no. like it almost makes you have that gut reaction when you see so many losses. You're like, there's got to just be one punch to you. You, you overcorrect to the yeah. The, to, you try to resolve it as quickly as possible without thinking the repercussion. I know I can I can get that. Yeah, like you don't take that five minutes to think about why it's yeah. still a bad idea because it sounds it's so Nixon, Nixon syndrome. <laughs> Nixon syndrome. So now at this point up to up to date, also. Um, MacArthur has been very vocal about his, um, what would it be? His, he, he's being like leashed or he's not being allowed to win this war his way. And that's what's dragging it out. He's basically being very publicly critical of president Truman. And for all intents and purposes by the constitution, president Truman is MacArthur's boss. Yeah. Well, I would say that, that sort of happens a little bit further down the road, but the talks start to happen when he says nuke them, and Truman's like, fuck you, dude. You're not in charge of the nukes. Yeah. I'm in charge of the nukes. I understand what you did with That's him. That's when MacArthur starts saying he's being hamstrung. Yeah. And the reason this is going on longer is because he's not being allowed, what, basically carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wants. Well, and I would say, and this is just my own personal thinking, if we have the atomic power to drop a nuke on somebody... The one person that I want to be the most important person to be the one to press the button is the president, because I want him to think about the repercussions of what he just did and whatever comes back our direction. I want the guy that pressed the button to know that he was the one that was in charge of this happening. Well, yeah. Like, I don't want a a military general who we're going to lambast, but he'll eventually just get kicked out of the military and that'll be the worst thing that happens. If you drop a nuke as the president and it goes south and they either stop it from happening and send one back or we just get one back in the mail anyway, 
I want that guy to be the one guy that we can just be like, he made the worst decision ever. Let's just kick him out. I know, but I think that's what MacArthur's all after too, that ability to do that. He just doesn't give a fuck. I don't think MacArthur saw that side of it. I think MacArthur just saw what happens when it goes well. Oh, okay. Yes. That. Yeah. Or, and what he believes he would be able to handle yeah. in his, in his yep. hubris. So after this is when he starts being more publicly critical and public opinion. I don't know if it really is going against him fully, but I think after, because of the, how the war is going and knowing he's the Supreme commander, it isn't going well for him. Yeah, I don't well, know how bad, but he's not getting, he's not as popular with the public just because of all the losses and basically the fact that this shit's still going on. And the writing starts to kind of be on the wall because we have this young buck named Matthew Ridgway who by chance kind of finds himself in a crazy position. This really high up officer that was just, I think it wasn't quite MacArthur's like second, but one of his other guys dies in a car accident. Oh, is that how he got there? Yes. And then all of a sudden this Matthew Ridgway guy, he basically takes command of the eighth army from this guy's command and okay. basically he's he's a so, how. he's what I would consider like what you would call a soldier soldier. He's very concerned about like all levels of his command and all of the guys working for him. So he's going out and he's raising spirits throughout, you know, the ranks and everything. He's talking with um frontline guys and asking them what they're seeing, what they need, um basically what they're seeing for tactics, instead of just like trying to play the fucking telephone game and asking his next, you know, subordinate. Hey, what are the men saying? Well, they're saying this and having to worry about that filter going through. And so he starts to kind of um, be a little bit more serious in the training and guidance and basically is trying to develop their method of warfare to be able to kind of match the Chinese method of warfare as well. Well, and he's actually letting these new recruits get off the boat and like get their feet wet a little bit, at least sight their weapons in mm-hmm. before that all happens. Like yeah. that's the part that I just, I can't completely explain how important that would be to have every person getting off that boat, at least have the confidence to know that your, your rifle shoots straight. Yeah, exactly. It, it seems like a small courtesy, <laughs> but apparently it's a large victory. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Kind of after that, the Chinese supply lines had gotten so far down into the south that they started kind of running into trouble because they're not just taking from the north at all. They have to still be bringing things in from the Yalu River to cross. And the United States still has air power and bombing capabilities to, to reach that, you know, even from mainland Japan or one of the islands of Japan. So it's just kind of one of those deals where they probably could have continued advancing at a strong rate. But while they're trying to advance, you also have the issue of um, them not being able to go as far without kind of making some concessions. Like any further south you go, you're going to be going at a disadvantage. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. So that kind of becomes the issue. And Well, here's the thing. They're losing so many guys to casualties that it's not just equipment they're having to replace. The one thing they're having to replace the most is actual manpower. And they just seem to have an, in, you know, an infinite supply of it. Yeah. It, it kind of becomes like a, I don't know if you would say that it was just the Chinese ran out of steam and backing or America and Ridgeway kind of were reinvigorated. With I think some there's some, something to both of those. Probably. Well, 
we had uh, Ridway start something on January 25th, 1951, called Operation Thunderbolt. Hell yeah. And this was um, something that I didn't know really kind of thinking about back then, but it was a recon mission that was followed by a full advance. So not only are you sending scouts and everybody to see what's going on mm-hmm. out there, all these scouts are followed very closely by lines of attack. Yeah, of infantry so and stuff. It, yeah. instead of essentially like leading from the front with your fighters, mm-hmm. you had scouts that were out there looking. Making and, sure you weren't walking into an ambush. And yeah, shit. which that's, seems that's, brilliant. And unless you're the guy that's a part of the recon <laughs> group. Well, yeah, but I mean, that was, unfortunately, that was their job. But that was one of the things things that he implemented he's like why are we just like walking into these areas where they obviously have the advantage of all the terrain so he was sending scouts out and be like hey is there any way we can get past this without walking down this well-maintained road that we know is probably sighted in by artillery yeah so they ended up meeting the chinese the han river and chinese were giving it to them again like this was just it was almost like different play or same script, just a different page. Mm-hmm. Like they were just getting pounded and pounded again, but they ended up being able to push the Chinese back across the Han River, and they also got of a hold of a little town called Wanzhou. Okay, and so it was almost like the first time where they had seen like, hey, this is the best the Chinese are giving us. Okay, we can withstand it, and then we can also push through mm-hmm. it. These so, tactics are working. They're sound. yeah, like like you were talking about Ridgeway thinking of like, hey. We need to bulk these squads up. So if they're taking out our first and second line, just like we're doing to them, we have something to continue to push yeah, forward. We, we with. got depth on the bench. Yeah, yeah. We're not reverse advancing or whatever the fuck MacArthur called it. Mm-hmm. He likes to use that words and or that but we're word. also not charging into these areas recklessly and getting fucking ambushed again. Yeah. Yeah, like there's there's some forethought into the planning yeah. that's going on here. And I think maybe it was a good thing that MacArthur was tied up with Truman in mm-hmm. arguing about the nuclear option because I think that sort of gave guys like Ridgeway more of a chance to shine and be the guys out there on the field. Kind Making of the imp- decisions yeah. there that maybe needed to be made right there instead of bouncing it up because someone can't get back to you in time. Yeah, like if MacArthur is off fighting against Truman and he's like, whatever, just tell him to continue on. Yeah. And the guy here is continuing on. He's like, okay, well, no new orders. I'll implement my yep. own shit. So before we get into the fourth phase, I need a bathroom break. All right. All right. That was our final bathroom break anyway. So what did MacArthur do to get fired? Or what did lead leading him up to it? I would say that if anybody was trying to get fired, he may have been the guy that was just trying to get fired. I don't, I don't know he, if I don't maybe it was he just... he thought he could. Yeah. He, well, I guess maybe that was it. He thought that he had the bandwidth to be able to do and say the shit that he did and like he's popular he thinks he might be still popular back home he's got his little press corps with him that takes his picture i mean oh that was the other thing about him that really fucking got me was when they had taken over luchon Mm -hmm. he was waiting out on the boat after they had taken everything over. So he like didn't even go spend the night after they had taken over Luchon. Yeah. He stayed out on the boat until they were ready to take over Seoul and to take it back. He just strolls into Seoul and took like three or four pictures. And then turned right around, didn't he? Yeah, and then hightailed it back yeah. to the boat and went back to Japan. Like he didn't even give a shit to stick around for that. Yeah. To like take assess the situation or like try to establish some type of yeah. He walked into the shot. He walked into frame. They took a picture and clicked it, and he was just gone. Did you get again. it? You got it? Okay, I'm out. Um, one thing he also did. So he had a press release that he actually wrote about the entire situation, about his opinion on China and everything like that. And instead of clearing it through the normal channels before releasing it, he just released it to the press. Right? 
Yeah, but before that, you remember the letter to the Republican? Oh, was that first? I believe that was the first thing. Okay, so he also sent a letter to uh, Joseph Martin Jr. He's the Republican leader of the House of Representatives at the time to read aloud on the floor of the House, basically being critical of Truman's Europe first policy and his limited war strategy. And basically, to summarize it, basically seems it seems strangely difficult for some to realize that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to play, uh, make their play for global conquest, and that we have joined the issue thus raised on the battlefield, that here we fight Europe's war with arms while the diplomats there still fight it with words, that if we lose the war to communism in Asia, the fall of Europe is inevitable. Win it, and Europe most probably would avoid war and yet preserve freedom. As you pointed out, we must win. There is no substitute for victory. So basically saying that they don't realize what's going on over in Asia. He's not getting the support that he needs. Um, and bypasses basically his boss to complain to, to Congress about it. Well, and the crazy thing about him saying it, like I said earlier, he was so concerned that the buildup in Europe, like you mentioned in his letter, was the issue that he had with this thing because they weren't listening to him. I, I think this entire time that he was so obsessed with his image, his public image, that he was looking to basically he knew that it wasn't going well and he was looking to scapegoat and, ex- and provide the public an explanation as why it wasn't why it wasn't going well and that it wasn't his fault because they weren't helping me they they weren't allowing him to fight like he he thought he should be allowed to fight the war because <laughs> they weren't gonna let him use the atomic because they weren't gonna let him like he wasn't gonna just come out and say that because could you imagine how fucking public would have been like i'm with him i'm with him Ooh, yeah i, I was with him up until this atom bomb part what do you mean they hamstrung you they would wouldn't let me microwave a part of China. <laughs> like, okay. Oh the, oh, the Russians have nukes too. Yeah, we shouldn't nuke anybody. Yeah, it seems like a bad idea. And so, that's where kind of his the death knell in his career comes up is he ends up releasing a press statement without the approval of anybody back in Washington. I don't remember where it was internationally, but he basically said that he just talked shit about China the entire time. Talked about how they were supposed to be, you know, the the strong, powerful army that nobody could take down and that we should be scared of communism. And then he says, well, yeah, they don't really have flight. They don't really have anything in the Navy, like completely neglecting to realize that he was getting his ass kicked by the same people he was belittling. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're literally talking shit to your next door neighbors right now when in all actuality, the majority of your support is much, 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 much further away. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and as he's saying this, he mentions that his inability to use nuclear power isn't ex- or nuclear firepower isn't exactly up to the president and that that is a war strategy that has been talked about, which in saying that every other member of the United Nations and everybody else that's supporting and fighting America just fighting realized... Huh? Fighting with America. Or fighting with America, I guess fighting with the South Koreans and with America. But the fact that the guy, the Supreme Commander, is the one that said this. Oh, yeah. They didn't fucking like him. From from a pretty early on, they thought he was just trying to fucking start shit with China and we're going to lead everybody. Because guess what? A war. You think a war with China isn't going to become a world war again? Yeah. Well, and if you piss the Soviets off and you fire a nuke over there... Anybody who is backing the people that fired the nuke is probably going to be up for bid to get guess hit. Who's, guess who's on the other side of Russia? Yeah. yeah. They have neighbors on the other side, too. It's a lot closer to hit somebody in Europe or in South, I guess, 
Australia would probably be easier to hit than America, but Russia can hit a lot closer places before they hit us. Yeah. So that was kind of just the issue for him at that point. He he had talked his shit, and it got really, really bad. Um, we'll talk about kind of what happens with him in a little while. But uh, Phase 4, that is the early success that they saw, uh, the Chinese saw at a place called Hong Xiong. And, nice. Huh? Nice with this. You like that? I for some reason, Korean just feels easier to pronounce. Yeah, I was gonna say me. you probably listened to enough uh, research and everything podcast to to get that down. Yeah. Um, the U.S. troops and a French battalion were basically surrounded again, and this is what they considered like the Gettysburg of the Korean War. Which uh, I guess I don't know. Maybe they're just looking to label something. I guess I kind of saw the parallels, but um, the U.S. and French forces fought back hard as hell and ended up taking back control of uh Hong Xiong and just the areas around there which like it was 56,000 US and French 50, against 25,000 Chinese 5600 or fi- wow shit 5600 much more impressive to 25 <laughs> way more impressive than 56,000 5600 US and French soldiers against 25,000 uh, Chinese soldiers. So you're one fifth, basically yeah. the size of the army that you're able to fight and to be able to take back some place that the Chinese had just taken over. Like that's a, a gotta be a huge morale boost. Oh, it does. And, and you're, you're learning from each one of these engagements. So at this point, it's kind of known what the strategies of the Chinese are going to be and what their capabilities are, because you actually have competent ground commanders down there at making decisions. For, for the most part. So between, you know, January to April of 51, you basically have these, you know, properly trained UN forces. They start, you know, overpowering these groups of Chinese soldiers and North Korean soldiers and rack up around 50,000 casualties from the end of, Jan- or between January and April. So, I mean, they're, they're doing some damage, but it seems like there's just, and I keep saying it, but fuck, man, there's, feels like there's just always meat to throw into the grinder. Yeah, there is, but... Uh, I mean, to think 50 or 50,000 casualties from January to April, like that's a pretty high success. And you're having to replace all those guys. too. That involves bringing, you know, more supply train shit. Well, and they have, (coughs) excuse me, a very (coughs) large standing army. But you have to think at this point in China, it's not the best and brightest coming over. Well, like they're they're pulling guys like I said earlier out of fields. They, they're not they're training still them. Still trying to make sure this regime, this communist regime, can stay because you still do have the nationalists that could still be a threat. Yeah, I think they were throwing just pretty much anybody that they could over there. I think they were just keeping their best down south a little bit. You think? I think yeah, because I'm telling you right now, man. If you're if you're the type of guy that is just you already know what's happened in several battles where all your guys just charge and y'all get mowed down. If you're any of those guys, like at some point, if you have any type of intelligence, you're a good soldier, you're going to stop that tactic or you're going to just be like, I'm, I'm fuck this. I'm out of here. Yeah. I, I guess it could be true. Just that the confidence of being properly trained to be able to do something just really seems like a big deal. Yeah. And that's when we run into April 11th, which we... Best day ever, as far <laughs> as the Korean War is concerned. That should be Armistice Day. Yeah. We should have a fired MacArthur mm-hmm. Day. But MacArthur just goes ahead and gets removed by Truman. And 
that public statement that he made, like I say, was just kind of the final deal. Because At that point, there had to be action taken. You're either going to let this guy just operate independently and have control, or you're going to have to save face and do what your job entails you to do and get rid of this guy. You told him that he didn't have the authorization to even speak about this, let alone he be the guy that decides it. At, an unknown number of times during this, he overreached his orders and overstepped out of his bounds from the orders he was given from his superior commanders and from like the chiefs of staff. So this is where great decision is made. They put in Ridgeway to replace MacArthur um, as the commander of the UN forces. And they basically just start using sound tactics like they should have been using the entire time from someone who's been over there and actually has some experience and is probably over there, you know, um, a little more often, maybe stays the night a couple times. I'm not yeah. sure anymore. Yep. Um, Fully engaged. Exactly. So they start wearing down the Chinese and North Korean troops um, on a counteroffensive, pushing them back north of the 38th parallel. Um, and so, that offensive is from like May to June 1951. After all of this time. You the, get back to where it, it all began. Yeah. After and, all but, but this bloodshed order. and all these deaths. That was his order. And look at look what happened. He knew that was his order. He got it done. And then that's finally when China comes to the bargaining table with basically an end in their favor in mind. Uh, they, I don't know how much you read about this shit, but they chose the city that it happened. Mm-hmm. It was up in North Korean hold mm-hmm. or held territory, Chinese held territory, I guess you'd say. Oh, all the petty little shit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, all the chairs that were showed up for the U S delegate yeah, were actually delegates. shorter than, mm-hmm. than the chairs. So they sat lower. <laughs> Could you imagine all these people that are out there dying and then you show up to try to bargain for peace and these motherfuckers can't even get the same height chair just to try to feel a little bit more superior. I don't want to bring this up about Asian culture, but do you think they had maybe overshot it and they're like, we're a little bit shorter than these guys. We saw the picture of the emperor in Japan. So maybe we need higher chairs so we can yes. look eye to eye yeah. with these people. It, it, you, it's not hard to connect those dots. There but then they, a, they overshot it and they were like a foot mm, above the U.S. people. Yeah. And they're like, well, this makes us look mm-hmm. bad. So basically this like armistice negotiation, this begins on July 10th. And during this time, this isn't like an armistice negotiation where they're like, hey, everyone's going to cease fire until we get this thing hashed out. All the fighting is still fucking going on. And it's just basically at this point, it's like a version of like World War One trench warfare. Yeah. Where I, they're basically just little advances and they're doing these mass bombing campaigns throughout the negotiations. When I say mass bombings, it's mostly the UN bombing areas in North Korea. I, and we had talked about this before. This and, and the Chinese are like, okay, you're bombing North Korea. We're <laughs> negotiating. Yeah. And you're not even bombing our land. So, I mean, what are you hoping to accomplish here? The, the thing that <laughs> gets me is... July 10th, 1951, we start these negotiations. How We said that this went till June 27th, 1953? Yes. So we're talking about a matter of two more years after we come to the peace table to talk about this. And we still see so much effort after this. And it was almost like the fights and, weren't... And during this time, like they're talking... Like I was saying, there's very little advance, but there is bombings and there's still engagements and everything. I'm not saying there's no advance. It's little give and take. So like during this entire two-year period, soldiers like UN soldiers, Chinese soldiers, North Korean soldiers, South Korean soldiers, they're all getting killed. I think 
sort of what this part of the war reminds me of is like a heavyweight boxing match, but it's in like the eighth and ninth rounds where like you're so worn out. Just gassed. Yeah. So Leaning you're on looking, each other and just trying uh, to get a body shot. You're throwing a haymaker every other punch trying to end it. But at the same time, the other guy is still so good that that's his same frame too. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're hitting and striking a blow, it's not doing as much because you just don't have enough behind yeah. it. And the idea that MacArthur had, <coughs> excuse me, of the atomic bomb, that's going to win pretty much anything. Yeah. But these guys were so close. I think one of his quotes was bomb them back to the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. The Chinese were so tough. That they were... That's how they were fighting. Yeah. They were, like, in in these defensive positions that, like, the Chinese were making to, like, halt these advances when it was, like, slingshotting back and forth. They were basically digging into mountains. Like, the stuff you think about when you think of, like, the um, World War II, like, uh, Japanese island hopping. Yeah. Like, how they had the fortresses, like, in Iwo Jima, like, dug into the hills and everything. That was like it was, but all over fucking Korea. Like, these armored positions dug into mountains to where... The the amount of mortars and shells that it lists off for these numbers yeah. is fucking insane. There's a three-month period. The last three months of 1952 saw the <laughs> UN fire over 3.5 million field gun shells and 2.5 million mortars. That's just the last three months. That wasn't even the hottest part of this. Well, yeah, this is 52. This started in 51. So we're a whole nother year advanced. Exactly. And, and this so, is the shit that's going on. And the thing is, is you can't bomb them back to the Stone Age because that's how they already fought. They were these tunnels and mountains. You couldn't reach them with, like, the planes coming in for strafing guns because you can't penetrate a mountain and you can't yeah. see the targets. So you were still having to have guys go in and clear these hills little bunker by bunker, cave by cave with guns and fucking flashlights and shit. They were fighting the Korean War like they were fighting World War One, Or like we fought World like War people One. Need to, it was trench like, warfare. Exactly. Like you got to think of it as a combination of almost like Japanese island warfare and like what you think of like spider holes and shit in Vietnam uh, and everything. It was that kind of shit. And that uh, to me, it's just so incredible because that's uh, where you see the resolve is just like those late rounds in a heavyweight fight. If they still have enough heart to continue to go out there and go the whole thing after being pummeled for so long, mm-hmm. that's a pretty tough force. And to say that they went shot for shot with the UN and with the South Korean and American forces at that point in time, like that was a pretty apt fight. Yeah. They, they met them stride for stride with as much technology as we had on our side. Um, they just had so much resolve that they could overcome that. And I mean, so that last push that they had on July 13th, was that, that had to have been, was that July 13th in 53? Yep. So they weren't, again, they weren't fucking. No, 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 no. It would have had to have been 52. It would have been 52. Yeah. Because it was July that they had signed. Oh yeah. They would have had something that, well, actually it makes. Maybe. I don't know. Bad research on our part, but it was, it could have been 53 because it was in June. So there was one... Or it was July. Okay, so it was the first part of July. So, yeah, I could see it. (laughs) So there was one last push that saw 80,000 Chinese soldiers attack the South Korean lines. And at this point, they lost 25,000 actual KIA. Yeah, so killed in action. They lost 25,000 of the 80,000. And that was compared to the 14,000 on the, like, UN and South Korean side. So you have to imagine that that was finally where you could see... China had made it over the hump of being like, we're going to make some concessions back to you, even though we want the best deal possible. Because to think that it was that bad of a a final loss, 
it just feels like maybe that was what pushed them over the line within potentially 14 days to finally sign this armistice. Are you looking up 52 or 53? Yeah. So to get to that point, it just had to have been a big event. Because like I said, or like you said earlier, the Koreans came to the table like wanting to try. They started when they were ahead before they came to the peace talks. Their whole idea was MacArthur's idea of just wiping them out and taking everything over. Then they see the American resolve come back. Then they're like, hey, let's come to the table. But we still want to try to get like the best deal possible that we can. And finally, after this big event that happens, they probably... 52, I think. 52? Yeah. Okay. So they finally had made enough concessions to where, like, okay, we're just going to keep losing this way. We'll go ahead and sign the agreement. And July 27th, 1953, the Korean Armistice Agreement is signed uh, by almost everybody. <laughs> and almost everybody, the one objector turned out to be the South Korean president, Syngman Rhee, who thought that they, he still needed to preside over all of Korea. Like He wasn't cool with us giving up. He wanted the whole thing. So he was the only one. The UN signed it. Um, everybody that was on dude, we're done. <laughs> yeah. You're fucking done. Yeah. Do you want to keep your job? You're just going to go along with this. Like, we'll take you out just like we put you in. You're like, you don't need to sign this. It was actually, we were just asking for a courtesy if you would like to be on this, but apparently not. That's why you, everybody else got a, is not required to make this binding. Yeah. Everybody else got a pen. You got a crayon. That's mm-hmm. how we feel about you. Um, yeah. So that. I would say ended it, except for it was ended in an armistice. So ending that way means that technically the Korean War is still on and going, and I don't everybody. Think that's not shocking, though, is it? Like if someone, uh, you, if you really okay, don't use it in this term right now. Don't use it in the term of the Korean War. If I were to just tell you, you know, there's there's a war going on in Korea, and you would just look at me without thinking of the Korean War and probably be like, yeah, I can see that. I know that guy, fucking Kim Jong-un or whatever. It's crazy. So they're, they're probably in some type of war with, like a Cold War or something like that. So it's not surprising that this just turns into a fucking Cold War, basically. The Korean Cold War. Yeah, which, <coughs> to think just about the way that everything is set now, like Kim Jong has shut down all the borders, uh, COVID made it worse to where he wasn't letting like any of the actual UN investigators in, anything like that. It was just basically like the shutting off of one entire country. So we hear about these nuclear tests or we hear about these cruise missile tests and it kind of makes you wonder what's going on. While down in South Korea, they're still going through military drills and everything else. Yeah, what- K-pop now. <laughs> yeah, I guess they they did come out on the other side, and they make bar none the best silent Korean cooking YouTube videos. Yeah, so th- that really can't be compared either. But we have this ramp up of it wasn't like we ever cooled down. Like we sent the people home, we sent everybody that mm-hmm. was in the UN home, and all that kind of stuff. But we've set up military bases that are still constantly populated by U.S. troops yeah. over there. And it's, not it's to say stationed. that's the... Like if you hear someone, where were you stationed? I was stationed in Seoul or I was stationed in Busan or... Yeah, that's yeah. not not to say at all that we don't have those in other countries, mm-hmm. but to have that next to something, a, a country, a landmass, a peninsula that's still in like an actual Cold War. Yeah. That says that we 
are still pretty concerned about what the could be coming is, out we, of the north. We've heard about it for so long, not the Korean War, but just Korea. Yeah. That it's just one of those things where now it's just background noise. Now you just hear Korean, you're just like, what's, what, is anything new? And like, you, you're almost disinterested before you even get the question out of your mouth. We get more tied up in hearing the legends of uh, Kim Jong-un shooting like a 34 out on the golf course and having like six holes Getting in a, one. Getting 11, 11 holes in one in yeah. a row. And like the first time he did something, uh, first time he ever bowled. It was a 300. 300. Yeah, you get it, shit like that. Uh, that's like what we care about now is to hear that kind of the stuff. The goofy. Yeah, the goofy <laughs> shit. Just, the goofier, the fucking better, yeah, I guess. It's amazing. But, I mean, when it boils down, you know, what a war boils down to as far as the, the loss of life. And on this one, in a, in a period of basically, you know, three years in this little country, you had... 1,550,000 yeah, North Koreans dead, or dead or casualties? Casualties. Casualties. Um, 990,968 South Koreans, thank you. Two to three million civilians. So going back to that point I made at the very beginning of the episode, more civilians than in World War II. Really? Yeah. Wow. I just, looking at that number and just quick math in my head, if it is higher end of the 3 million, that's more casualties than suffered between the South and the North Koreans. Okay, I heard that, and then I heard it somewhere, and then I heard it come out of my mouth, and it doesn't sound right. The South Korean casualties? Yeah. Or the civilian casualties? No, compared to the civilian casualties, but compared to World War II. So, in that same vein... We lost 36,334-ish Americans. Um, we had 103,000 that were wounded. So casualty-wise, we're 139,000 total, which for a war that we don't... Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. It was a higher rate of civilian <clears throat> casualties. So sorry. Definitely not a higher number, but a higher rate. And so what I mean by that is I think the the stat I heard was... so per how many people were in the country, they lost 10% of their population. I don't know what a in genocide has to be, but that's got to be a three mess. years. Like, that is so fucking crazy. Yeah, that's, that's a hell of a lot of civilian losses. And then, like I was saying, we had 139,000-ish casualties just from the Americans that we really had no reason to be there because we didn't have a whole lot of skin in the game besides our own, I guess, care about the region. Same thing goes, um, UN casualties, 15,000 plus. Uh, so that includes like um, Great Britain, Australia, just anybody that's in the UN. Smaller loss of life, but again, these were 15,000 casualties coming from a group that was supposed to be the main protector yeah. <laughs> of that area. So they got off fairly easy compared to South Koreans and Americans. Chinese death toll is estimated at 180,000. I don't know how I 
close or accurate that is when you hear about just how many guys were mowed down in these lines. And then how much information does not come out of China. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just our estimate. That was, that would never be a number that would probably be confirmed or some shit. Well, we talked about it in the dam break episode. Their numbers are always so much different from what they really are. Yeah. And And they're definitely not going to share it. And, they're basically not going to come out and admit and be like, oh, yeah, we sent this many people over that you guys killed. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that would be too much of an admittance that they definitely had the, a full hand in this. Ulterior motives for sure. But, yeah, man, the the fact that this, you know, this gets kind of – World War II is such a big mountain that it casts a shadow over this. And not saying it's big, but it's such a big mountain from worldwide perspective that this happened so quickly up against it. And was kept, I feel like stuff that doesn't, like I said, end up in a W gets hushed up. Yeah. Like you don't want to discuss the losses. Well, and even, I think the other big overshadowing thing was we had done this once, but we did the damn near exact same thing in Vietnam. 12 years later. Yeah. Like just that. <laughs> that's not going to take us 12 years to get to that topic. You have not but, learning this. And maybe that's where the just massive groundswell of Vietnam was for people against the war was in the purview, or I guess in the, the view of the population, they're like, guys, we fucked up in Korea and didn't win that. You, Why are we doing this you, again? You walked me into a thought that I had the other night and I'm glad you actually reminded of, or me of it. Um, there's this thing about like, and I don't know if it's a generational thing where like it always kind of skips a generation. So you have grandparents that look at grandkids and say like, because they're too different, like they don't respect people or do things like that. And to me, that is, that should be more of a, um, of an example on the way that they raise their kids because their kids raise those kids. The father raised the razor of the child that he's then complaining. Exactly. And so in, in stuff like this, where you have a generation and I'm going to tie this into the Vietnam, like protest type thing we're talking about. What I feel like is you get this generation of people that came back from like world war two and everything and then you get in what Vietnam was in the seventies, right? Early seventies, 12, if it was 12 years later. 70s. And this ended in 53, 65, something like that. So late sixties, you, you get, get these, 17 ish years. Yeah. You get this generation of people who have grown up with fathers that came back from a war who probably had horrible PTSD and fucking probably substance abuse problems to try to dull that pain and everything. And you have people looking at people like that and being like, war is the worst thing. Yeah. War, war ruined my family, war ruined my father. And so you have this overcorrection for this generation when Vietnam happens that you have all these people that are like, what the fuck are we still doing fighting? You're just traumatizing another generation of people. And now you're going to have those people try to raise other people. And it's going to be just all that shit. So it's like an overcorrection. So, you know, it's, it's not that, they're different. It's like, no, they see like the shit that like their parents had to deal with and then want to overcorrect and not have to deal with that themselves or have their kids deal with it. Well, and yeah, it's, uh, I think that's exactly the easiest way to describe it. And just personally in my life, I remember growing up when we went into Afghanistan. I remember growing up when we took over Iraq Mm -hmm. and I remember being so positive and thinking like, these guys are heroes over there doing that and look at how they're, they're maintaining our freedom. Mm-hmm. Like that was the full on belief. And I do believe that soldiers do maintain our freedom. Like mm-hmm. that's unequivocally, that's just what they do. Yes. But 
as I've gotten older and I start to see like we're engaged in other places and things are happening, my views of war change so much because of just learning what happened in Iraq and how many people didn't come back. And it, when it you see what it my, does, it changes my viewpoint from like the people on the ground and saying like, what are we doing over there guys? Like, yeah. What are we doing? And now my attention focuses and be like, those guys aren't making the decision to be there. Uh-huh. They're they're being required to be there. They probably don't, you know, a vast majority of them don't want to be there. They would rather be training at home and being able to see their families every night, not ever have to go to war. And so your attention focuses just like in this, you're looking at like, why were all these guys in Korea? It wasn't all these guys in Korea. If they didn't have a reason to be there, it was fucking MacArthur and some other people making decisions that were like, yeah, we're going to put these guys in these positions. So the attention really focuses up up to leadership yeah and so that's where you tend to focus and be like it's it's very few people wanting to make fucking war and do this shit there's just a lot of people that they drag along for the ride yeah it's not that i would say that these guys weren't deserving of support they were deserving of all the support in the world but you can support the actors without supporting the producers yeah like it's it wasn't their decision to be there, but since they are there, it is valiant and it is important to recognize that. Yeah. At the same time, they just shouldn't have been there. Exactly. And it was all under the assumption that communism was going to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Fucking red scare, baby. All right, man. You got anything else? No, I think we're good. I, I feel good about us doing the Korean War some justice. Yes. All right, guys. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historicallyhighpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. Peace.